Well, welcome to the Situation Report and the Roundtable for January 10th. Hard to believe we're already at January 10th. And we've had aliens at malls, aliens in hospitals. Man, what a week. I had so much stuff sent to me after Monday's, Monday's sit-around that I couldn't keep up with it all. But they got me twice. 
I'll, I'll tell you, they got me twice today. The the first time somebody sent me something from Real Raw News and didn't send me the article first, they sent me the write up first, and then I got the the article second. Realized it was real non Real Raw News had to take it down, and then the second one, somebody forwarded me uh, a a film of a ship burning. It was in San Diego, and uh, Danger Doug. Thanks, buddy, for uh, for squaring me away on that one. I didn't catch it. I actually didn't didn't vet it before I posted it, but yeah, I got caught twice today. So we're, we're joined by troop troops in the house. Colonel Conrad's going to be here, and Matt Bracken's here. Hi. Gentlemen, thanks for uh, jumping on, Matt. I I hope you got all of your uh, audio issues solved this time because I know that uh, audio and you are not good friends. Yes, check check. Awesome. Copy. So. It's been a busy week. I, I will I will say that uh, here's the interesting thing about doing these, right? So, in addition to the grammar police, which when you when you do stuff on the fly and you do live shows, you say sometimes you use use things out of context, use the wrong context, wrong words, whatever. But what's funny is that the uh, the uh, the um, what do you call it? Uh, the grammar police show up, but then there's the, the conspiracy police that show up that want to correct me on all of my conspiracies, and uh, they, they miss the context of the conversation. But a lot of things have happened just in the last three days that bear discussion. So I, I spent most of the sit rep on Monday talking about the, the Epstein disclosures and where I think that's going and why I think it's going in a certain direction. And I could be completely wrong. But the way I'm seeing it and and the way that it's it's unfolding is that they're doing more and more disclosures around the leading you to the island. And if you've heard me talk before, and I'm sure Matt will back me up on this and same same with true. If you've heard me talk before, when you when you build an influencing campaign and you're you're trying to bring people along on the narrative, you have to you have to it's just like telling a story. You have to fill in all the gaps for the who, what, where, when, why, right? When you watch a movie, they build a character up, they give you the storyline, they try and do that in the first 10 minutes of the movie so you understand the, the enough of the backstory to be able to get the context of what they're trying to put in front of you. And in this case, the context of not just the situation with Epstein, but the context of the system around Epstein is important. And I'm seeing not just, not just conversations about the island and who went to the island, but conversations about the system, the tunnels, the 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 uh, the different properties around the world, and then this 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 raid on this Shabbat in New York two days ago, and talking about the tunnels underneath that that um, piece of real estate, it's significant because they're trying to build the story to tell you that there's a system in place that's been here for a very very long time. That's why this is all signal. And this week, Austin, it came out what, yesterday that Austin had been in the hospital. Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defense, was in the hospital. Now, it, first it was he was in ICU for complications from a medical procedure. Then today they said that he's got prostate cancer. Who knows what's real, right? So there's that going on. Then there's the continual attacks of U.S. warships around Yemen and in the Middle East. At the same time that's going on, you I don't know if anybody's been watching the weather, but we're seeing a massive, a massive um, cool, uh, cool air 
system coming in from the Arctic and it's below normal temperatures for a lot of parts of this country. And we'll talk about that. So gentlemen, thanks for joining. I, I wanna start tonight with the, the Austin situation. Both of you are former military. Both of you know that if the Secretary of Defense is down for any reason, they transfer authority. That's that's a pretty significant deal, and it should make national news. So, Matt, let's start with you, and we'll t and let you talk to your thoughts on that. You know, I, I was um, I was only a lieutenant in the Navy, but I was you know in SEAL team, and I was top secret SCI, and um, we had a couple special weapon trainers, not the actual weapons. So we had a thing called the PRP, the Personnel Reliability Program, I believe it was called. So inside, inside of your medical jacket was like a, as I recall, going way back, was a like a big cardboard white piece of paper with like black and red lines across it about the PRP. And it was like, the doctor can't open this unless there is another person in the PRP in the room in case you're put under anesthesia and you start spilling all the secrets that a lieutenant in the Navy might know, right? And it was it was drummed into our heads that the PRP was like, you violate anything like this, you're going straight to to uh, uh, Can Leavenworth, Kansas, like for life, right? Like this is like sacrosanct, like you know, discarding top secret in the trash or something. And here we have the a guy that's like on the other side of the nuclear football going AWOL. And it's no big deal because President Biden is not really the president. So why should they tell the White House they're not in charge? Like, what mattered is, did they call Obama? You know, did they call Obama? Because we don't even know who's really running the country. I, I'm, a lot of people hypothesize it's Obama doing his third term, but we don't even know. At least in Russia and China, they know who the leaders are. We don't even know who's running the damn, you know, who's in the front of the airplane. Over. Yeah, I think the total lack of respect for the commander in chief in this illegitimate structure is, is first of all, that's shocking. And Matt, you brought up a good point. This guy is the the top, even though he's a civilian, he's still considered the top military uh, guy, right, for all of the armed forces. And I never thought about that. I mean, if he's if he's at Walter Reed, who's in that room with him and what are they feeding him? I remember when they took my wisdom teeth out on the right hand side, they told me not to come back because I apparently tried to leap out of my chair when they pumped me up with whatever, it, you know, the anesthesia was. So when I came back to do the other side of my mouth, they gave me these date rape pills that you take a half an hour before your procedure and you forget everything. I, I went into the dental office. Uh, I took the pills. I was reading a Dilbert book and then it got really funny. And I remember the nurse calling me back to the room. I remember sitting in the chair. And then the next thing I know, I'm waking up at home with gauze in my mouth. Like what happened for six yeah, hours? My, my um, wife used to do a thing when she was a Navy nurse called, uh, I think it's called waking, waking anesthesia. Like when they put something up your uh, conscious sedation, when they put something up your third point of contact with a camera on the end of it. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're quote unquote conscious, but you have no memory of it afterwards. Yeah. But you're completely lucid. Um, even though not you only you're, not only are you lucid, you're like, according to witnesses in the room, I'm not speaking of myself, but according to legend, you are talking about 
what you think the nurse looks like with her clothes off. Yeah, being totally completely honest, right? It's a truth serum thing. Now, the only the only bright side to that is I'm sure that any secrets that Austin knew, he's already shared with the Chinese. They didn't right. need to put money yeah. for that. So that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, the <laughs> interesting completely AWOL, though. I the mean, interesting you know, part for me with with Austin is that for for those of you who don't don't know how the Pentagon works and how uh, the presidential details work. There is a detail of people around him at all times. And one of those people is usually a lieutenant colonel or a colonel that's an aide. And his, his, that person's whole job is to communicate with the rest of the chain of command if he's incapacitated for any reason. And then they pass it to this, the, uh, the undersecretary of defense. And it's a big deal when you take the SECDEF offline. I mean, it's not yeah. something you keep private. So Matt's point is valid that, um, and, and Troop, to your point, the, the fact that no one in the administration knew that he was not only in the ICU, but he was he went in for a medical procedure, that's significant because it tells you that there's no line of communication between the White House and DOD. And I don't, I, I can't under, I can't emphasize how dangerous that is. Yeah, what, one of you, my... One of Go my ahead. favorite authors, um, John D. McDonald, in his like early 50s, went in for routine bypass surgery. And you take, you know, you sign the, the uh, release and it says, like, I understand that there is some tiny chance of something going wrong and I'm going to croak. And you just sign it and then you go and you get your procedure. He was that, you know, he drew the short straw and he died during a, root, a routine procedure. And today with hospitals, you know, with the in, infections going around, et cetera. Um, anytime that they do invasive procedures, there's a finite but very real risk of death. And and his undersecretary was on vacation in Puerto Rico, ex-CONUS, not in CONUS. Yeah. And that's, you know, you that's, can, that's even more significant, right? Because... Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. That's even more significant because if you if you distill out what was said, whether it's true or not, it, I, I I don't care. But what's significant is if the SECDEF is incapacitated, the undersecretary goes back to D.C. to the Pentagon to run the show. It's not a casual, this is not a casual movement where I was on vacation, I handled everything on my BlackBerry. It doesn't work that way. Because you at the Pentagon, you have some very, very key shops that, that, the uh, the SECDEF monitors, one of which is the National Military Command Center. That's where all the coordination for all the emergency action messages that go to all of our nuclear forces, whether they're on alert or not on alert, doesn't matter. Exactly. But somebody's got to man the NMCC, and that's a big deal. And the other part of it is you don't do that remotely. It's not like somebody brings you the football in Puerto Rico and says, here's the football. I'm going to stand here in the sun while you're, while you're you know, you're out in the middle of the way, uh, way, you know, way the back, beach. way back when I was, and I'm sure this is probably the same for tankers in the folded gap or, or at the DMZ in Korea. When I was on nuclear submarines, the, the bubble heads on those nuclear submarines, it is a war footing. They are literally listening for things like a enemy torpedo door opening where they would fire a war shot. There is no, you know, escalating to condition this or that. Our nuclear submarines are on a war footing, right? Like, like they're just their finger is hovering over the button. 
and they're on high, super high alert at all times. Yeah. So I can only imagine that the Secretary of Defense, when he is not in the Pentagon, there is a person who is designated in his place, and and you know that for the assistant, the, the assistant sec to have to be in Puerto Rico. It's just such a dereliction of duty, and I can only imagine that you know the Russians are kind of busy right now, but China is certainly looking at uh, Taiwan, and the Iranians are looking at the Red Sea through their proxies, and they have to be thinking, when will we ever have a chance like this? There's yeah. nobody in charge. And that's where I was going with it, is the fact that you're not going to take the football down to Rosie Rhodes and sit on the beach with the Undersecretary of Defense when we have Ukraine going on, we've got Gaza going on, we've got ships in the Middle East that are being attacked on a routine basis by by uh, Yemeni's forces. You don't just sit on vacation. It doesn't and, work. And we have way. our we have our staked goats in remote Iraq and Syria out there to be missile bait. Yeah, and so that so my my point of saying all that was that that's that's why the story doesn't add up to me. Because if if you've got all that going on, the Undersecretary of Defense would go right back to DC. They wouldn't stay and they would first they would tell the undersecretary that the SecDef is sick and something's going on. You need to return you need to return CONUS ASAP, or they would send an aircraft down to get the Undersecretary of Defense. They have they have basically G uh, G6s and G7s that are dedicated to key staff members to get them back and forth between wherever yeah. they are I, I, and the I listened, Pentagon. I listened to Bongino, some of Bongino's podcast yesterday, and he, he was talking from his uh, Secret Service experience where he was in the Obama-Biden detail, you know, in the White House, flying on Air Force One and Air Force Two, et cetera. He said that there are the equivalent of whiteboards with like the, I don't know, back in the military, we used to have like a board by the quarter deck, like the captain has a little uh, plaque. It means like he's on deck or where is he? You know what I mean? It's like a, a thing yeah. that would slide into a slot or hang on a hook. It's like, where is the CO? Where are the top five officers here? And if they're not on board, there's a hook for like where they are. They're at comms that they're at spec war staff or whatever, but you have to know where everybody is at all times. And the cabinet level people, not just president, but all the top, the cabinet level and, and uh, Supreme Court, I believe, they get secret service protection and they all know where they all are at all times and yeah. where they're, and if they're on vacation, they know where the number two is. It's like, not just we've heard, but it's like on a board. This is where the number two is, which is where the number three is right and now. More, more importantly than that, if, if you know that if they know the SecDef is going in for a procedure, especially a medical one, then the de the undersecretary is already told and knows that that's going on. This this is not one of those deals where he's going to go in for a minor procedure and the, the undersecretary is not going to be there. And I, I can tell you this from experience at being at the Pentagon and seeing all this take place in front of me. I know exactly how that works. And I also know how many people are around the SecDef and just how big that staff is, just like the Joint Staff. Joint Staff is huge. Then it's not just military people, it's civilians and military. And you're telling me that in, in, in a place the size of the Pentagon, that no one leaked to the press that the SecDef was sick? Really? 
I, you know, I'd be curious if he was dead. Has anybody seen him in public? I don't think so. Well, I'm, you know, the to the question, the reverse of that, if you put me on guard duty and I was asleep or I decided to leave or I'm like, yeah, no problem. And I never showed up. What what the fuck happened to the shit that I was guarding? Who was watching the shop? And what you guys are talking about is basically a conspiracy because there's no way that this guy's going to drop off the radar for even five hours, let alone five days however long he was out, who was watching the shop? What were they doing while he was gone? You have his XO basically on vacation. He's gone. Nobody said a word. What the fuck do you think happened in every, you know, Hispanic control? Well, that's the question of the day, right? Yeah, I think, that, the I think that the, um, I think that his assistant secretary of defense is a female, which in this era makes me highly suspicious that she's a woke DEI uh, 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 promotion. And that wouldn't surprise me either, Matt. That really wouldn't surprise me, especially now. I'd be wanting to check the guest log and who was who who was in the immediate proximity of all those people during that time. And, and just so we're clear on DEI, so we're talking about d diversity, equity, inclusion, and this is not a new phenomenon. Obama started this back in two thousand and nine when when he really started to get his his teeth into dismantling DOD. He promoted a bunch of gay. Um, senior officers especially colonels and and general officers because i worked for one flaming homosexual she was she was openly homosexual and she was she was playing favorites with everybody on the staff that she was attracted to all of them were, were women and that's part of the reason why i retired and the, the and the, the thing is is that if that's true then the really the bigger question is who really is the xl that's the bigger question yeah, um, Michael Yan. One of his sayings is, "If you keep, if you, if you're continually surprised by things, then you have to reevaluate your paradigms because your paradigms are wrong. You have to find a paradigm that fits the circumstances that you're that you're in. So, if we continually see things like the border wide open with Chinese soldiers, spies, foreign terrorists coming in." You can't say it's a mistake or it's incompetence. At a certain point, you have to say it's a plan. You know, if the if somebody left the castle's drawbridge down and the enemy sneak in and they keep doing it every day, it's not every day they're incompetent and made a mistake. They're traitors. Exactly. Yeah, that's not the oh, there's Russians falling out of the sky in parachutes with AK 47s. I'll just adjust my Overton window. <laughs> move right along people have said that for years about biden obama clinton oh i can't believe how stupid these democrats are they're not stupid they're really good at what they want to do and yep. you're right i mean that's exactly it but it's the you kind know, of using incompetence for, the, for cover for treason yeah well I mean, it, it's even more insidious than that right because not only do they play the incompetence card they also were obfuscating their email accounts, misspelling their emails, creating it, misspelled email accounts, creating different accounts, creating in, accounts outside in, of the unsecure, unsecure accounts, known unsecure yes. accounts. Yeah. It's the equivalent of uh, going back to um, some of these. It's if, if somebody who was, had the uh, proverbial briefcase handcuffed to his wrist, if he went into a bar, you know, in the sleazy part of town 
and he left his briefcase on the bar for an hour while he went to the bathroom and then he came back out. You don't say, well, he made a mistake. You have to assume that the briefcase was left there on purpose to be to be picked up or examined. You don't you, your assumption can't be that it was an honest mistake. It's the, the, you, the assumption falls the other way that it was treason. That's what I was taught. Yeah. You know, that's that's how it was when I was in. Yeah. And that's that's the piece that and that's and part of what I was circling around with Austin is that this is not just a, an oversight or an omission. This is dereliction of duty because anytime, anytime a senior official goes in for any kind of a procedure, it doesn't matter what it is, any kind of a procedure, they have contingency plans for contingency plans if something goes wrong, especially the president. And every single time a senior official goes in, even Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, anytime they go in, they, they have a group of people around them that are monitoring 24-7 and communicating with just about everybody in the government to let them know what's going on, or at least they're supposed to. So this is not just an oversight. This is dereliction of duty. And, and possible then, deniability. Well, that right. too. And, when, that, you, I mean, and when, when you, if you flip a coin, this is something that Ann Coulter has been saying for years and years, you know, if you flip a coin and it lands on tails a hundred times in a row, it's it's not random, you know that when when they when they do not protect the Supreme Court justices and let rioters get right on their lawns, it's not a mistake. These things are not mistakes. They no. are letting terrorists into the country. It's known all over the world that if you can get to Mexico, whether you walk all the way up the Darien Gap or whether you fly into you know Mexico City, if you can get to Mexico, you just walk across the border. And say my name is whatever you know, John Smith, Muhammad, 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 and you're in. It's not an accident, and it's worse than dereliction of duty. It's treason. It's yes, treasonous yes. behavior. If yes, you, you know, if you're if you're in charge of the nuclear uh, weapons on an aircraft carrier, and you open all the doors, and let you know frogmen climb up the ship and go into there, it's not dereliction of duty. It's treason. Yeah, it is. And that's that's the point I was trying to make is that this is not just an unusual event or a chance event or a competence. They knew he was going in for a procedure. They knew that there could be complications and there was there was no contingency. And it's it's during a time of heavy conflict. And I can tell and, you and that there's when, no and, you know, there's no there is no consequence. I, when I was at SEAL Team, uh, SEAL Team 2. In the 80s, a guy who was not a trident wearing frogman, he was he was, you know, a sta uh, just a support guy. OK, he had a girlfriend out in Missouri or Kansas or somewhere, and he went off the reservation and he didn't come back. They had to drag him back. OK, over 30 days. Desertion. They did the full TV show branded scene. I never saw anything like it in my short military career where. Starting at the CO's office, they took off his insignia. They had a, a master at arms march him like shoulder braced on shoulder. And as he went out the halls to the quarter deck and off the property of SEAL Team 2, we were lining the walls on both sides and we did about face. As he passed, we did about face, turning our backs to him. 
he was just a guy that like didn't come back for over a 30 days. <laughs> he wasn't the sec def. He was just a, you know, a PO2 or something. And yeah. we marched him out. We did the full, you know, take off your insignia. And then, he, and he went from there to the brig. And from the brig, he's got a dishonorable discharge. As it should be, right? And the, and the Secretary of Defense does this. And it's like, not only, so he, he shot on the White House. He shot on the National Command Authority. And it's like, no problem. Well, this is a signal to our enemies that we are a clown show. We are a clown car. Yep. Well, that goes right along the lines of, um, so I've heard in the last couple of days, and I don't know how true it is, that one of our ships was hit by either a missile or by a a drone. And there was there was no press on it. There was no report of BDA and there was no report of any kind of reta retaliation. And I, I can't help but think that this whole Austin thing is a ruse for he's either dead or he's somewhere trying to negotiate um, some kind of a ceasefire. That would be my guess because, you know, um, Blinken was in Saudi Arabia last week and he was trying to to cool the temperature there to make sure that the um, the Saudis and the Iranians don't and the Iraqis and the and the the rest don't move into into Israel, you think that's a possibility too, or do you think that that he's legitimately sick? I don't know. I just know this. I'm I'm looking at it from the point of view of the signals it's sending to our adversaries. However, you slice it, they have to be looking at us and saying. Now is the time if we do a if 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 we attack, you know, in multiple theaters, America can't possibly do a damn thing about it. That's true. We we well, I, I had this conversation this morning with a uh, with a couple of O sixes. Um, that's the funny thing about this, Matt. Since and and Drew and I have talked about this, so he knows what I'm about to say. Um, what's funny is is uh, about two months ago. A bunch of people, former military, figured out that there was something seriously wrong. And I've had O6s, I've had O5s um, coming out of the woodwork and calling me and reaching out to me and trying to get on the show. By the way, um, you know, it's it's trying to coordinate, trying to get everybody on the show is, is not as easy as it seems. And the other part of it, too, is that with all of this conversation, um, People are talking about line of secession, chain of command, and what the uh, the appearance is to our adversaries overseas. And and the opinion that I have now from four different officers is that it's not just the view of us from the outside. It's that the the rest of the world is seeing just how much the American public is gaslighted, and just how incompetent the U.S. military is. And our adversaries know that we could probably only fight for a month or two at full, you know, at full steam if we had to, and maybe one, one area of conflict, we can't do two regional wars. No, we, and we can't even sustain one for more than a couple of weeks or a month. That's why we're being, we're being sucker played in the red sea where we're, where I've seen different prices of these uh, SM, I think it's called SM three, the, the vertical launch missiles. So we're firing essentially million-dollar missiles at you know twenty thousand-dollar drones. Exactly. Well, 
Well, the and drone... they only hold X number and they can't be reloaded at sea. They have to go back to Dubai and Dubai is going to kick us out at the first sign of trouble. Oh yeah. Well, so I then, think I... then where are they going to go back to get missiles? Yeah. And I think the other, I think there's another piece to this too, that, that I think is even more, um, even more, uh, I don't want to say insidious cause that's not the right word, but when, when you're, when you do strategic planning at the Pentagon and you do it, let's just say an O plan, cause we have a bunch of O plans you war game out and you plan out all of the different contingencies for forward operating bases. We're there. We're not there. We have to operate modified. We get kicked out. All of those, all of those um, activities and that planning that happens very, very methodically. It's not, it's not just that, you know, we look at the current situation and say, we're going to stay there forever. We are constantly or should be constantly wargaming. What happens if we lose an ally or an ally decides not to support us, right? Because we we learned that graphically when we did the, the Libya raid in the 80s where we couldn't fly over France. We, we learned that graphically where the 111s had to fly around and then fly through the med and then fly down. That was a big deal. And it caused a bunch of planning after that that drove planning for yeah, years something that was less something that was less known it's very uh it's like 99 percent probability we also shot down an italian jetliner over southern italy during this back and forth with uh, the libyan migs yes we did yes we did and because of that we which was like a vincennes in a sense but it was against an ally so it was put under the rug oh absolutely it was and and my point was that when we did when we started doing that planning, we did it because we couldn't assume that any of our allies were going to support us in every operation we ran. And if Dubai goes and we get and now you're hearing the Iraqis want to want to throw us out. If we lose all of our foothold there, we have no forward projection of force. Yeah, this but, goes this almost um is rhyming with the beginning of World War II with with um a, a, that what had been a debate over uh, the Philippines that the Navy said, we can't defend the Philippines. We have to get our assets out of there. And yeah. MacArthur and the army said, it's important symbolically. We must remain in, well, like with a 24 hours after Pearl Harbor, they attacked our, our forces on the ground in the Philippines. And that knocked us all the way back beyond to Pearl Harbor and beyond. Yeah. And we knew we couldn't hold the Philippines too. That was, that was the other thing is that was not, that was not unknown. That so was we well do known. things. We do things for symbolism. Today's version of symbolism is is um, the right of uh, freedom of the seas to travel from the Suez, you know, through the through the um, Red Sea to the world, and that's going to end just because we can't maintain it when you're sending million dollar missiles to shoot down twenty thousand dollar drones. Yeah, it's not. It's not, it's not possible. Yeah, and and. And my point to that, or the other point to that too, is that so if we lose our foothold there, then the the narrative right now that they're trying to build is that if we lose our foothold there, the Arab world will unite. Well, the reason why we're afraid of that is because we can't manipulate and control the price of energy coming out of the Middle East, which is all roads lead back to resources and money. So I can't help but think that what's going on in Gaza is directly related to that. And what's going on in Ghana is directly related to that. So that we have control. Guyana, 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 whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. South America. Yeah, South America. Right. 
So those oil fields all of a sudden being contested and there's a, a push by Venezuela to move in and, and take over that and annex that land. I can't help but think all those and things China are China is absolutely taking over Panama lock, stock, and barrel. Oh, they're taking over more in Panama, man. But I'm, no, I mean, I mean, Fort Clayton, which used to have an American flag in front, the headquarters of American forces, Panama, now has a UN flag in front. Yeah. It is now the headquarters of the invasion of America. So yeah, Fort Clayton, Panama went from being the headquarters of the U.S. Army defending American interests in Central America to now being the headquarters of the U.N. invasion of America, which is funded and supported by American traders. Well, what's interesting about China right now is that um, if, if you follow Jennifer Zahn, she's been talking about the last few weeks about all of the senior military officials that are starting to disappear. So it's it's very reminiscent of, of Stalin-esque uh, pre-World War II, where he did this purge and purged the military of most of the senior officers that had any experience. I can't help but think that the CIA is behind that, trying to disrupt their operations and, and buy time. But, you know, I could be wrong on that one, but it sure lot, seems like that. I think a lot of them are coming right into America. They're already, they're just, they're setting up little bases inside of America. These, these like marijuana grow farms, I think part of that is legit in terms of being a funding operation. But part of that is they're building uh, a safe house and base camp infrastructure in our country. Yeah. Where they I can saw move your post. 100 people, put, can't put them on cots, feed them and send them out. I, I saw your post about the, uh, the shipping containers with uh, full of small arms. I, I thought that was brilliant. So, and, and Jan was asking me if I could come down in the next, uh, next couple of weeks. I don't think I'm going to be able to swing it, but I, I'd love to go down and see what's going on. That's for sure. I, let me ask you guys this, and then we'll switch off to this weather pattern that's coming in. Cause I want to, I want to war game a little bit. Um, what do you think the, uh, how close do you think we are to the event horizon of this, this big black swan that everybody's talking about? How did just a, you know, swag. Do you think we're a month away, two months away, six well, months away? My, my short answer is every every morning when I wake up after sleeping for the last three or four hours, so I don't usually sleep much longer than that. Well, I mean, that's not in, all in 24 hours, but I get up, I turn on whatever, doesn't matter what channel. If they're still talking about the same BS they were talking about last night, I go, ah, we made it through another night. Because every morning when I wake up, I'm waiting for an image from a you know shaky aerial image of a carrier on fire, okay, or another uh, skyscraper on fire, something where everything is now changing, or you know twenty ships in the Middle East are now slinging missiles at each other. True, because something like that could could happen overnight. Agree, I agree, I agree. True. We got through winter, so I would say late June, anytime during July or early August. I, I don't know. I see this storm coming down from, so we, we did this Arctic thing last year or the year before where Texas had um, snow for an extended period of time, lost power, ice storms. And, and typically we see those kind of storms. I, I, do you think it's possible that they could, that, because this, I'm trying to put this in a way, I just, I'll present it to you the way it was presented to me this morning. Cause I hadn't really thought about it um, on that phone call this morning. The, the conversation was around if we can if we can manipulate the weather and we can create a massive storm 
especially a storm that would take out, yeah, we're talking about HARP. I don't know if it's HARP or weather manipulation, whatever you want to call it, geoengineering, whatever the hell you want to call it. But just, I could tell you just in the last month, I've seen a lot of weird weather just here in Arizona. And the, the normal weather pattern here has been completely disrupted. And what was put in front of me today, I hadn't really, again, I hadn't thought about, but it's, it's, it could be plausible. And that is, you architect a big storm to come in that shuts down 70% of the country, um, not just because of the weather, but shuts down 70% of the country just because of heavy snows or restricted movement. And then you take the power, you hit us with a cyber attack. That that could be a significant event. And just by the nature of the, the type of storm it is, it would restrict movement and buy them enough time to be able to consolidate power. And I hadn't thought about it. And the way it was presented was, um, the premise was that they could consolidate power within inside of three days if they had all the infrastructure in place, meaning they could restructure the government, they could restructure the currency, and they could turn on the social scoring within three days. I don't know if that's feasible or not technically, but evidently there's people that, that um, think it is feasible. And I guess this conversation has been circulating. I, again, I don't know how true it is because I just heard it this, this morning. And it wasn't from somebody I talk to regularly, but you think it's plausible? I, I just don't know enough about weather manipulation to be, you know, I have no opinion because I just don't know enough. If I wanted to control a bunch of people and have some contingency plans for that plan A not working out, I would blow shit up in July because everybody in the entire United States needs air conditioning and I can control a lot of people indirectly if I, uh, kick one of their legs out so that's that's why i think summertime it's it's a perfect time to create a crisis instigate any kind of lockdown or any kind of programming that you need it's a it's a perfect amount of time ahead of the election and anybody that they're worried about namely the armed ultra mega patriots they have families too so if i was really worried about a bunch of rednecks trying to kill me and fuck shit up, I would, I would go after their family. I'd go after their communities and I would do it in a way that they could not defend against or control. And so the first thing that comes to my mind is turn off the air conditioning, take away their food stores. All the, all the venison that's in your freezer is going to melt. Now it's going to turn to garbage. You're going to have a long, cold winter. And that's, that's exactly how I would do that. I, it would be late August, anytime in, uh, you know, June, June, July, August. And, uh, and that's, that's going to help me lay the smoke that I need to conceal what my real agenda is. Well, I think, the, I think the real agenda is being decided by the oligarchs in, in uh, New York, right? The bankers, guys like Michael Bloomberg and, and um, Jamie Dimon and that crew, because uh, I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole of Bitcoin and Bitcoin, Bitcoin ETFs, because that's consumed my inbox this week too. I I just don't know enough about Bitcoin. I don't care enough about it because I I don't think cryptos are going to survive. You can't no. you can't just release a digital currency in place of a fiat currency and expect it to have value. It has no value to me now, and just because they tell me it's secure and that's the way we're going to pay for at, stuff. At some point, there's a grid down situation, an internet down situation, or. Uh, Governments say crypto is only used by terrorists and gangsters, and you can have crypto, but if you trade in it, we're going to arrest you, and they'll do stings. So if you're afraid to go on you know, to, an exchange, you may have a gazillion dollars worth of crypto, 
But if they if they are doing sting operations, what good will it do you? You can't exchange it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my problem with with crypto in the first place was just like with Bitcoin, you know, because I could have invested in it. I had an opportunity to invest in it when it was like a buck. And I didn't do it because I didn't understand it. Like the, you couldn't pay for anything with it. All you could do is throw money at it and hope that it would gain value. And you have to be really, you have to like uh, Jordan Sather and a few others are really into crypto. And, you know, I've had several conversations with them. I, I just can't get my head around it. So I don't get the value proposition of it that, you know, would trump something like, you know, physical gold or physical silver or real estate, you know, tangible assets. Right. And, and that's not being old school. That's it has just, to be tangible. Has yeah, to be tangible. There's, there's no assets attached to it. I mean, and that's not to say lots of people haven't made millions of dollars in Bitcoin. Yeah, but I think they, I think they, they sold it before the, they, they weren't the last fool. They, they, hold on. <laughs> They they blew their wad when they started going after these Bitcoin traders, and they 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 made it pretty clear that they could control it. The whole desire of Bitcoin was you could create money out of nothing, out of your power supply on your your computer that's idling all day anyway. It's like SETI at home, but you know, a, a minting coin. And when the FBI was able to take not only take over people's wallets, but they were able to extract the coins from them. And then use them use them for other stuff and i'm sure that they use them for a lot of nefarious transactions as well like pallets 100 dollars bills but you still had the the physical world as well when they went down the path of showing that that digital that digital frontier was just as compromised they went into regulating it they went into pushing their own central bank digital currency and now they want a digital id Anybody that's in Bitcoin now, they're like, fuck that. They're going to, I mean, it's, it's, it's so tracked now. I can see Bitcoin completely having a free fall. People are going to be trying to get out of it and go back to the physical world. There's no well, there's, way. There's going, to, there's going to be a, a rupture at some point. Could be, you know, next week or in two years. But there's going to be a rupture where supply chains are so disrupted that the only money that matters is food. And it, it will help if you don't freeze to death in, you know, Montana or have water coming to your tap, that will also be a big consideration. But when we go through an Argentina-Venezuela-style freefall, where food is the only thing that matters, there will be people, you know, literally uh, taking suitcases full of money for a suitcase of soup. And the money that we, things like crypto will have no meaning at all. Your stock portfolio will have no meaning at all. There will be no bridge to the other side. It will be like coming through uh, the South in 1866 with a suitcase full of Confederate money. It will not do you any good. You know, when on the other side of this, it will have to be, it will go, there'll be a period where it is pure, tangible assets, gold, silver, land, uh, diesel fuel. And, if, and slowly there will be some kind of a, of a you know, non-tangible exchange recreated, but it will be a while before we get there. And crypto will just be like a, you know, a bubble that popped, literally. The what was that? The tulip, the tulip frenzy. Yeah, I don't think it's going to stick around. I, 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 and I know all the Bitcoin guys are going to come out of the, you know, crypto guys are going to come out of the woodwork and and argue about how you know secure it is. It doesn't matter if it's secure. You can't you know, trade. It. A, you can't trade it. You can't exchange if, it. Yeah, if you go back to two thousand and eight, right. The, the thing that the banks struggled with 
just like after the Great Depression, the thing they struggled with is consumers and Americans didn't have confidence in the banking system. And right now, Americans are, are rapidly losing their appetite for not just the banking system. And you're seeing a massive amount of consolidations in the banking system. When the Americans lose confidence in the banking system, they're going to figure out another way to trade goods and services. And it's not going to be in crypto because most people don't trust the government as it is. They don't trust the internet. They don't trust their bank. It, it, they're not going to fall back to an electronic medium when everything else is compromised. And that it's, it's like, how do you, how do you, I guess the best way to put it is when you, when you get to that bare bone place where you're, you're just worried about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you really don't look at any other alternatives other than what's in front of you physically and tangibly. So then there's Colonel Conrad. I, I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see um, a barter system for a period of time and a black markets sprout out of that. And I think um, we're going to see a number of different, uh, I don't want to say markets emerge, but we're going to see a number of different um, trading mechanisms yeah, that are going to after, be electronic. After, um, and things will be much more local regional because transportation will be such a big part of it. You know, one of the revolutions of the last generation has been uh, the cost of transportation has gone to almost zero. You know, it, They'll, they'll ship parts to China and ship them back just for labor. You know, the, so the crossing the ocean is nothing unless you're talking about, you know, perishable goods. So we're going to suddenly see a need for local transportation because there won't be, you know, just thousands of tractor trailers with diesel fuel taking food a thousand miles. So you're going to have to be, you know, the food is going to have to come from your, you know, your area, your your uh, county for a period. Um, when when uh, the 2000 collapse happened in Argentina, Fernando Aguirre, he's a podcaster as a modern survivalist, um, Spanish and English channels. He wrote he wrote a book uh, like surviving, you know, the coming collapse kind of thing based on his Argentina experience. And there was a year where there were no banks in Argentina. You know, there a few of the predictable things were the, the elite that knew it was coming, got their cash and got out and converted it to dollars because they knew they had like advance warning that always happens. But the average schmuck in Argentina, they saw their money go up in flames and what? they were at a barter. They were at a, for several years, they were living purely on barter. So in abandoned warehouses, black market sprung up and the yeah. police weren't being paid. So the police were just as likely to protect the black market warehouse. Well, they right? got to eat too, right? They got to yeah. eat too. So yeah, they got to eat too. So there's, on the one hand, you can have an Argentina situation where where black markets spring up. You know, wherever they sell Christmas trees and fireworks, those kind of lots, suddenly it'll be like a flea market of people just exchanging goods and services. Uh, and on the other hand, you can have a Ukraine holodomor if the central government can maintain enough police state control. Then they can raid and ban and outlaw these these free markets, and basically make people starve. And that way, the only people that are fed are the ones like in Venezuela, that you know belong to the local militia or the you know their block wardens, their loyal patrons of the dictator. They get you know food deliveries or access to the warehouses where there is food, and everybody else starves. 
So these are some of the, these are the paths that it can take, but there is going to be a break where food is the currency. And I, I don't think that this is all. So the other question I got asked this morning, then I want to transition to something else. The other, the other question I got asked this morning is, do you think there's going to be a black swan event that keeps us down for a sustained period of time? And I don't think so. I think the the black swan is going to be designed to be just a very short duration yeah, while they recalibrate plan, a, systems. A plan to ride the tiger is not the same as riding the tiger. Yeah, you know, you, They can plan a black swan and it's like saying, I'm going to shoot you with a nine millimeter one inch from your heart because that's the outcome I want. I want to be the hero. I'm going to be Dr. Kildare and save you. But that sometimes, whoops, I was off and I shot you right through the heart. You know what's you funny know? about what you just said, Matt? is that um, I've said for a very, very long time their arrogance is their undoing, and that's exactly how they think. That's literally exactly how they think. And I can't help but think that they're going to architect something that's going to that they think they're going to maintain, maintain control of. And I think they've completely underestimated the amount of vitriol and hate and discontent across the nation right now. And, and not only that, the lack of social control. We've raised several generations now of people with no impulse control. Oh, no. When no, there is no food available, yeah, they're, they're, they're rioting and breaking into places like a bakery. They smashed into a bakery. Did you see that? With a vehicle and looted a freaking bakery. Yeah. You know, they're yeah, not yeah. hungry. It was like for fun. So they have yeah. no impulse control. A week yeah. after supply chain breaks breakdowns, every supermarket will be empty. There will be dead bodies all over the parking lot, and it'll go from there to cannibalism. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. No. There's no there's no National Guard arriving with MREs that's going to stop that kind of a complete social breakdown. Well, so that, that leads me to another another topic which I think is interesting, and that is so um I I routinely get hit with the stuff that's going on in D.C. And I, let me just reiterate to everybody that's in the chat. I don't care about what's going on in D.C. The whole everybody sent me. I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people sent me the Hunter Biden stuff this morning. I don't care. He's not going to say anything in court. That's Kabuki theater. That's not signal. What is signal right now and what I think is going to lead somewhere is when they, the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court and when the Supreme Court decides to hear the Trump case for being on the ballot, then I think we will see somebody go off the reservation. And I think it will be this. And I, and Matt, I don't know if you heard my sit rep on Monday no, um, or our live chat last week, but we talked about the the guy that went after the judge in Nevada last week. That's significant because that doesn't happen very often and it shows that the cultural fiber and the social fiber is starting to fray for somebody that has literally lost you know all all sense of moral right wrong and and restraint like you said they have no ability to self-control or self-regulate i think we're going to see more of that and i think if they decide that that the 14th amendment can be applied in any any way shape or form and they change Trump off the ballot, you're going to see people go off yeah, the I think Justice Roberts is compromised. I think he switched on Obamacare um, at the 11th hour after he wrote everything against it, and then he voted for it. And then a week later, he's in Malta coming out of the bank in Malta with a big leather suitcase. Oh, you know? 
I, he's I think totally he's compromised. compromised. Totally compromised. He's years ago, years ago, it came out. And good evening, gentlemen. Glad to be on board here. It came out about Roberts that the two kids he adopted, he and his wife, had come through from Ireland through these well-known pedophile channels, and that that was something that they were always going to leverage over the guy. Because yeah. I had always wondered why exactly he had been turned on Obamacare. And yeah. if you could, and his and, wife is a beard. His wife is a beard. He was a. His compromise is also um, the the quote unquote men's health club possible videos, and he he married late and adopted, and it's um a lot of people consider that his marriage was a false you know beard marriage, for appearances. I, I that wouldn't surprise me. I think <laughs> I think you could apply that standard to every friggin' politician in Washington D.C. Like somebody was trying to tell me today, Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, is the you know he's this Christian. No, he's not. He's a homosexual. Look at the guy. Now all you have to do is look at him. You can tell he's a homosexual. Mike Pence, homosexual. I mean, that they've st and, I, and I'm not saying that to bust on homosexuals. I'm saying that to tell you that they have picked a specific type of person that they have placed into all these key positions across the planet, and it's a, it's a very specific type. And it's people that can be compromised. I Absolutely. mean, it, it's, you know, if you look at, let's just look at world leaders right now. The, the, the uh, prime minister of the UK, homosexual. Prime minister and, or, uh, you know, um, Macron, homosexual. And no, and no children, no, no children. children, most of them, no children, right. no, no stake in the next generation. It's a very specific type of person that they put in office and that they have, they have matured and groomed from a very young age and put them in office because they can be compromised. Well, Obama's, is Obama's no a classic. Obama's the classic. Oh, he's the maturing. He, he is the maturing. He was groomed from childhood. Absolutely. It's all, it's all a reflection of the oligarchs. Go back to the royal families. Hell, you look at the, was it Pritigers or, you know, the, the Pritzers, the Pritzers. Pritzers in uh, Chicago. Yeah. Being full-blown trannies and, and such like that. They're basically just putting in people like themselves that they identify with, right? And and then it's it's an ancillary benefit that they can leverage against them due to their their sexual preference and pre, you know predilections. Yeah. And so, and I'm and that's not a bust on people, right? That's just a fact. And the reason why it's why this is a salient point is you have to look at who's in the race right now. You have to look at who they're promoting here in the U.S. It's no coincidence that the PM in Scotland, in the U.K., and in Ireland are all Indians, and now they want to put Nikki Haley, an Indian, in the Perfect. office in the U.S. What happens in the U.K., they eventually want to bring here. And that's exactly what you're seeing happening right now. The, the other side of it that I think people miss or they don't want to pay attention, and that's the other thing, too, while I'm talking about this. Isn't it amazing the amount of people that are working, doing yeoman's work to try and tell you and show you that everything is normal? It is amazing to watch that cognitive dissonance at work every single day. All you oh, have to yeah, do is, you know what I'm saying? We're living in gaslight nation. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's, they're literally using that, that desire, that overwhelming desire to keep things normal and keep things complacent against you. And people don't realize it's going on. It's 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 a it's an interesting phenomenon to watch. But I think that's we're we're watching them try and do the same thing here. And I I don't think it's going to work. I I still I know a bunch of people have argued with me over this, but 
we're not getting to 20, the 24 election. I don't care how you cut it. We are not getting there. And I don't know what the catalyst is going to be, but my personal feeling is we are close to the event horizon, if not at the event horizon. Yeah, there, there's no there's no soft landing scenario. No. If, if Trump defies all the vote rigging and he wins, they'll take him out. You know, if if they install a Nikki Haley or a, a Michelle Obama, half of the country will absolutely reject it. And, Civil war. Right. No, there's no landing scenario where you know, Humpty Dumpty gets put back together. No, I don't. Let me, let me ask a question of you gentlemen, because you were talking about geopolitics in the Middle East about 10 minutes ago when I started listening. And, uh, you know, one of the scenarios that unfolds is just what Matt's talking about, what we've all talked about, is is the dissolution of the United States and, and this election being postponed or, or pushed off for whatever reason. And, and this, of course, becomes the excuse to destroy the American Constitution, yada, yada, yada. On the other hand, I began thinking a while ago, Trump used to have a very tight relationship with Ben Salman. And some people thought he was one of the reasons that Ben Salman was, was anointed as the next leader of the Royal Saud family. And so, you know, after Trump came in and went to the Middle East and did the saber dance and all that kind of stuff in 2017, um, ben Salman, you saw video of going country to country to country, meeting face to face with leaders pretty much carrying the water for Trump and, and building relationships. And I thought, hmm, you know, I, I, none of us are optimistic about Trump getting on board in the future in any kind of routine manner, nor surviving in the long term. But let's just say he does. Do you think that that relationship is, is still intact with Ben Salman? Could it be something used whereby we've got this BRICS situation, right? And you, you see China, you see Russia, you see India and these nations that want to break away from the city of London and the oligarchs and become dominant unto themselves and relegate you know, the past to the past. Could you possibly see Trump getting on board with those people using that to decouple us from city of London and, and those, you know, the old school oligarchs, the old families, et cetera? I think and, he already did that. I think he did it with LIBOR and getting us off of SOFR. I think yep. when he took us off a of sofa, that took away a lot of the power of the city of London, and that's where the the war started between I, Wall Street. I, I, and the city I, of I'm, I'm sorry, I, I've got to leave in a minute, but um, I think that we're still talking about a re rearranging the bridge officers on the Titanic. You know, if this first mate is promoted to captain, then we'll be fine. The problems are so, so structural and deep; it won't matter. City of London or not, whether you know it's the Indian mafia or the or the Saudi mafia, when the supply chains break down on a macro level, oil tankers not not moving, uh, at an American level, trucks not moving food, when that breaks breaks down, our cities will burn. Yeah, and it won't matter what was happening up on the bridge of the Titanic, when the supply chains break down, everything is going to come apart. No, I think we all agree to that. I think this is, and, and, and I would further add to that, that the system has to completely collapse before we can rebuild it. There's no reforming. I mean, and it probably won't be a 50 state, you know, under our current constitution. Oh, it's going to look way different. Right. But, but, but on the outside, there could be wild things like America breaks apart and California invites in Chinese peacekeepers, as we've discussed. You know, the, nothing like that is at, too outrageous to ponder. 
Well, the big question is what is what's the nature of the leadership in the wake of this situation? Is it? I think, is it... I think it'll be regional, and I th- let's. I'm I'm like ninety five percent finished my novel, which ends in Texas. I think if there's any area that's going to survive, it's going to be under the leadership of somebody like a Franco or a Pinochet, and it's going to be you get on board or you know you you're on board or you're out. If you can't speak English, if you can't prove that you're in the country legally, you know, uh, before 2000, things like that. It'll just be that, do you hey, do you speak English? No, bang. Yeah. That's going to be a litmus. <laughs> that's going to be, oh, really? No English? Bang. I've said that a hundred times, but I'm, I'm glad you're saying it too, because it's that is a litany test, right? And Tattoos on a, the and, neck, and, bang. Yeah, Foreign language, bang. bang. Blue hair, bang, <laughs> right. And yeah. But most of those people won't even be alive after a huge call based on pure starvation there'll well, be I a think, huge call the people on the other side of that depopulation are going to be hard-hearted people yeah i've been saying that too i, I right, you know I, I think i have to go gents i brought thanks yeah, for joining yeah we'll catch you next week good night Take it easy, man. thanks yep. I, I mean his point's salient right he's he's it doesn't matter what the geopolitics are and and what the the street cred that trump had when he was in office trump had a lot of street cred with with foreign leaders trump himself did right but remember he had jared kushner running around the middle east trying to broker a deal for economic zones economic opportunity zones and it was heavily favoring um the israelis but i think troop uh, i think uh, i think trump in and of himself as a leader was respected worldwide because he was advocating for peace but remember he was surrounded by swamp creatures that were violating the logan act E.G. John Kerry, E.G. McCain, E.G. Nancy, Nancy Pelosi that were violating the Logan Act, et cetera. Steve, I, I completely agree in your concern about Trump and his relationship to Israel. I, I'm very, very suspicious about that. On the other hand, as you pointed out, there were certain traits Trump had in a geopolitical sense that were, oh, I don't want to say unparalleled, but they were formidable. And if if he could build a vision and a uh, uh, concurrence with some of the other national leaders where the United States is not this imperialistic, dictatorial, 800-pound gorilla, where things could turn into more of a win-win than, uh, oh, we're going to come down here and turn you into a banana republic and keep you, uh, you know, subverted. If he could build those kind of relationships where it's mutually beneficial, where there's a mutual degree of respect, where we don't have to have 900 military bases around the globe. He didn't um, well, he was trying to pull back, dude. He, he looked, I think if, we're, we're too far. We're too, we're too close to the event horizon. And I think Trump realizes it. Well, my right? point is he would get more cooperation from those outside sources who also coincidentally are very much opposed to the Western oligarchs, city of London. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. I just think because Trump came out today and said he didn't want to be Herbert, or he didn't want to be Hoover, so close to a economic collapse. Even he's talking about economic collapse now because he sees it on the horizon too. And I, I think we're this has to this conversation has to be post collapse, and you know whatever turmoil we go through, because there's. There's no way he could, even if he comes back tomorrow, he's not going to prevent the collapse. He's not going to stop the war 
expanding the Middle East. He's not going to stop any of the malfeasance that's going on in D.C. and the money laundering that's going on in Wall Street. He's, he's one guy. He can't do that. He, he, you're talking about he has to reform the system. He has to work with the douchebags in D.C. And that's just Kabuki theater. They're all owned by oligarchs. And that the only way that 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 his and, and I agree with you, I think if if he was given another four years and, and all things being equal, if he was given another four years, I think we would have been out of Afghanistan. I think we would have been out of Iraq. We would have been out of Syria for sure. We would have been out of Africa. We would have pulled most of our bases out of Europe and we would have pulled most of our presence out of um, Asia. Like we don't need to be in Okinawa anymore. There's no reason for us to be there. We have no, there's no strategic value in that other than the Korean peninsula. And I I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly that we're going to go through some type of near cataclysmic, if not fully cataclysmic event. The question becomes, how do we come out of it? What do things look like? Trump is the one guy I think that could help as a catalyst, move us along faster. We all agree the system has to be torn down and reformulated and decorrupted. Total agreement on that. Yeah. I, but, I, but Trump as a guy to reconnect, to, to rebuild and forge uh, better, more mutually respectful relationships, I think is something that would move things along very rapidly. And I think when it comes to reestablishing supply chains that are effective internationally, rather than leaving the United States effectively a, a, a loose, uh, somewhat disemboweled association of, of miniature nation states, um, I, I think he would be the one guy that could help reintegrate things and precipitate that with, with international cooperation. Well, he's a businessman. Right. He's not exactly. a, he's not a lawyer. He's not a he's not a Ph.D. He's a businessman and he's a guy that's that's openly worked with a number of different groups to get things done in a city that was heavily influenced by the mob. And now, the you know, the mob has been usurped by the intelligence agencies that have taken over their role as this, the, you know, de facto mobs. I, I and, you know, where he clashed heads and bumped heads was not with with. The, the either the ethnic side of the house, the cultural side of the house, or even the spiritual side of the house. He was able to get along with everybody at a diplomatic level. I mean, I give props to the guy. I hated listening to his speeches because he drove me crazy. But you got to give props to the guy that flew to North Korea and and met met one of our staunchest enemies for 30, 40 years on the DMZ and actually had a conversation with the guy. You got to give the guy credit for that because and, and he's walked the, into North Korea. He's the only president in the last 40 years that has showed any measure of diplomacy other than Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter's a lot of things, but he at least tried to do diplomacy and he was villainized for it by all the neocons. And Trump did it and everybody looked at him and said, "Wow. That's cool. Why don't we do that?" It it, it was amazing. Right. Uh, so yeah. I, I think he I think if he if he had another four years, we would have we a lot of these things he would have done anyway, because he was already talking about it. And, you know, politics is a is a is a messy game in general. But diplomacy is hard. It takes a long time. It's messy. There's no end state. Sometimes sometimes it's just open dialogue with with no decision points. 
you know, we've been conditioned by the media. We've been conditioned by education. We've been conditioned by religion that you always have to reach some kind of a conclusion. Sometimes you don't, especially when it comes to politics and diplomacy. Look at all the regions of the world that have been disputed for more than 100 years. I mean, at least he was smart enough to realize that if I go sit down with North Korea, we, we have a better chance of making a deal. And I would bet that Trump would be the kind of person that may have one or two wild cards, unexpected things that he pulls out of his pocket in such a situation like that. I would think I would expect that he's already thinking about those things because he's a big idea kind of guy. Well, he's and, a big picture I, guy. He's not. A, he's not a minutia guy. That's what I'm saying. That's what yeah. I'm saying. And I and I think what I'm what I'm really trying to say at the heart of this is how we rebuild the picture on the other side of whatever event event that we're describing. Uh, a great deal of that is is has to do with how the rest of the world views us. Do they want to help us? Do they have a stake in helping us because they realize this planet is better off? with a, an, an ethical, uh, effective mutual partner in the United States, if they can get that, if that's what they see emerging, if we have the necessary degree of purge politically and, and otherwise. If we can achieve that and Trump would be the guy to drive that, great. If on the other hand, you don't have that, if we're still viewed as <laughs> basically uh, the life support system for the Central Intelligence Agency, who, who does a lot of nasty things internationally and that, uh, you know, nothing has really changed. And if anything, things have accelerated further towards the dark side, then, you know, that supply chain, the, the whole mechanism uh, is not going to be rebuilt. We're not going to get the kind of support that, uh, that would be beneficial. I, I think, yeah, I think that's post post collapse stuff. And I, I think it's going to be too chaotic. I, I really do. I want to address some things in the chat because there's a bunch of there's a bunch of com, com, well, there's a couple of conversations going on. So first of all, I want to answer Cheers talks. You're talking about your wife works in a, a cardio cath lab. So I'm in the radiology side of the house, and I can tell you that just since 2021, since the vaccines came out, every hospital, every MRI, I shouldn't say every, but the ones I know of have crash carts near every single machine because of whatever's in that jab is causing heart attacks when they get in the they get in the machine with the magnets. And we've seen a, a spike in myocarditis, heart attacks, strokes, you name it. And so we are we are in the middle of a die-off. And a lot of you haven't listened to me for the last two years. I said in 2020, 2020, before the jabs came out, and then again in 2021, that we're going to see a mass die-off probably at the two-year point, and it's going to continue. And that's exactly where we're at. We're seeing a mass die-off of people. And that is not going to abate. And I think that's why we're seeing this, this massive influx of these new narratives. Like there was one today, heating your house can cause a stroke or a heart attack or blood clots? Really? Okay. They're they're trying desperately to put out as many narratives as they can right now to justify and to gaslight the public that this is normal. I hear car I hear carbon 
is driving all of these black lots. Yeah, you know, carbon's <laughs> everything, right? That's, 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 that's the point. But what frightens me about that situation in terms of blood clots is that your usual uh, effective agents like Eliquis or Xeralto, et cetera, um, they're not effective against the physiology of what's going on. At all. No. no at all. And the other thing is, is that they're seeing a, a massive. So my good friend got the had two shots, got the Pfizer shots. We had words. And then uh, I was supposed to go see her and her sons um, the following weekend. And I called her that. I called her that weekend just to confirm that I was coming out the next weekend because her and her son and I were going to go. Um, they're going to do a, a movie and something else. Anyway, um, I called her. No answer. No answer. No answer. And she had texted me the day before and said, I'm getting my booster tomorrow. We had words over that. She's running. Had a stroke. Gone. 20, not even 24 hours after she got the, the booster. And then today I got forwarded something um, that uh, this is just among academy graduates that, um, let's see, where's it at? So uh, where's that at? Farther up here. Anyway, that the, a bunch of academy grads between 40, uh, 40 and 50 have had heart attacks. And it's, it's a pretty, pretty crazy number of people that have, have had issues just since the shots. So um, it, it's, we're seeing an uptick right now in a lot of this, uh, a lot of the, the activity from the shots, a, a lot of the adverse reactions. And then I, I, you know, there's a video that's rolling around of somebody, uh, I think she's in Europe, that said that um, within three to five years, anybody who got the shot is going to be dead. And that, that folks that got the shot in red states got a more lethal shot than folks in, in, uh, in blue states. I don't know how, how real any of that is. But um, we're, I think that's a good catalyst for why they are trying to expedite seizing control yeah 48 48 us uh us air force academy graduates have died just in the last quarter um most of them between 30 and 40 with some in their 50s um less in their 60s provider lists uh provider lists um and the deceased names are anonymous but they're all academy grads well let me let me jump on another side of that situation you're talking about the blood clots and ischemic events uh, a very close friend of mine who's a dental surgeon was telling me and he, with his surgeries, he's seeing a lot of people uh, on the increase having postoperative infections, which used to be very unusual. And he's drawn a direct uh, correlation with, with patients. And he typically asks them now, did you get vaccinated? How many vaccinations have you had? Uh, with you know COVID nineteen shots, because one of the things early on that they were talking about was was the the tests they were doing on animals, whereby they were witnessing changes to their immune system, and they had to stop testing because all the animals were dying; their immune systems were no longer effective. And so, you know, the theory is that we're looking at more and more people getting these respiratory uh, diseases and things like this because they just don't have the immune response, the resistance that we're used to seeing. And so it's 
that that whole system is being depleted and corrupted by the vaccine, uh, whereby your your uh, versatility in recognizing and building antibodies towards a broader spectrum of disease is now more limited and and less capable. So it's it's not just the blood clots; it's the susceptibility to infection, which dovetails into the next thing that they want to do is bring out more types of vaccines for more types of disease. So if you don't trust the COVID shot, well, that's okay. We've got other shots for you because we need to protect you from this degree of, of uh, you know, pulmonary infection or whatever the case is. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, the, the other side of this fence too is that um, no, there's, I've heard a number of remedies, like Pete Chambers sent me uh, a, a list of things to mitigate some of the symptoms. I've heard uh, a number of natural past talks like licorice root. If you take licorice root, that helps the blood clots. If you take um, the, um, it's not hydroxychloroquine, but uh, what is the other one? Um, ivermectin that helps with the spike protein. There's There's a variety of different mechanisms to help with that, right? But I think this we're going to see more deaths, and you're right. They're, they're this is they're actively culling the population. I'm just I'm just stunned every day that people don't make the correlation when somebody passes away. Like I had somebody, some one of our techs passed away last week. Like just didn't show up to work and in his twenties, heart attack, and nobody even asked twice, even thought twice about it. Yeah, that's and what shocks me personally is. You know, you work with people in the medical industry, and I've got some friends in there as well. And, uh, you know, just with some family members of mine that have illnesses and talking to as many physicians as they do, I'm utterly shocked and enormously disappointed at, at how close-minded so many physicians to this day remain because they've been so narrow in the number of sources of information that they're willing to look at because they used to look at the CDC or, or, you know, this body of evidence or that body. I have a good and, friend that's an ER doc, and, man. And, I can and, tell you that I've had several arguments with him because he literally last week just went and got his COVID, his COVID booster for the year. And it's like, they just won't open their eyes, take the blinders off and say, you know, there may be something else going on here. And I don't think they we can trust these, these government entities the way that we used to. He literally said to me, I'm not making this shit up. The science is irrefutable. What do you say to that? You're not going to convince him. I was like, I'm just your friend, man. I'm worried about your health. And that's where I left it. And we agreed to disagree. How many people are that way? And then there's there's another group, too, that are in the, the, the healthcare industry that took the money, that can't talk about it. And they know something's wrong, but they won't talk about it because they took the money. There's a, there's a whole host of doctors that did that. Yeah. I know one of them. And, and, and it's the ethical, the ethical dilapidation of our of our medical system. Well, it's more than that. Is, it's more than that. Is, we had a conversation when I was in Seattle, and he said, I said, why aren't you talking about this? He goes, I'll lose my license. They will run me out. The AMA will run me out of the business, and I will be blacklisted from any hospital because I took the money. And then I talked. He goes, there is definitely something wrong with these vaccines. Every, he said, he said almost 40% of the nurses that took the shot have long-term adverse effects. Some of them have Bell's palsy. 
it doesn't run in their family. He's like, when one of my nurses got Bell's had Bell palsy after two weeks after the shot, the first shot, he goes, I knew there was something wrong. So go ahead, Trip. I'm sorry I interrupted. No worries. So, Dave, you're closer to this than than either Steve and I are, but you know, I've been doing the the uh, first aid thing, and I've been reading a lot of medical stuff, and uh, the the term standard of care is what I, I want you to comment on. So, you know, the random zoosver and the and the ventilators and all this, the standard of care as it equates to medical malpractice, which the legal term is medical negligence, I believe. Medical negligence happens when a licensed or an unlicensed professional does not follow the prescribed standard of care for an illness, and as a result, the patient's injured. And then at that point, medical negligence occurs, and then they can be sued for malpractice. So if the government has decided, or who, whomever, the World Health Organization, the FDA, the, I don't know who is in charge of this COVID response and how hospitals were dealing with it, but if the standard of care is that you give people lethal doses of remdesivir and then ventilate them to death and you don't do that, then you lose your license. And if they die, which most of the people that went to the hospital were probably going to die um, because of other comorbidities, you know, they're overweight or elderly or had emphysema or whatever, then if, if you don't follow that protocol and they die, now you're, now you're in trouble. So, what where if you're just a doctor and you don't really care about anything but not losing your license and paying for your you know your your toys how how is that maybe maybe not at the doctor level but i'm thinking more at the nursing care level at the at the rnapn um cna even all the way down to the cnas but more with the nursing community if you don't follow your standard of care the standard of care that's that's being edicted by the doctor that's being edicted upon him then you're you're in trouble so then you're at this moral choice point and i know a lot of nurses and it's you know it's a tough question and if you call them out on it like well you should have did the right thing this you know these patients died because you knew this was this was the wrong treatment protocol you're a murderer you're a piece of crap you should have you know you should have quit your job you should have done something if if you're calling out and we know all these people in the medical community like we know that this vaccine's bad and we're seeing a direct result a direct correlation between people who are perfectly healthy that I've known for 10 or 15 years and people who got vaccinated and then something bad happened and you're screaming to the rooftops that something bad is happening and nobody's listening to you, but you're in a, in a medical capacity and this is the standard of care that you're obligated to provide. That's a, that to me, seems like a pretty difficult spot for someone to be in because yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted you to comment on that, Dave. Well, the first thing I'd suggest, whether you're talking about medical or dental or even functional medicine, uh, the whole spectrum, uh, we have to zoom out, take a look at where the medical model has gone in the United States. It used to be something that was more holistically oriented. And uh, of course, you have this enormous impact from the Rockefellers. I don't need to digress into their influence with the pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, et cetera. But suffice it to say, from a business standpoint, things in the medical community um, have gone to a business model. You're no longer looking at, okay, let's diagnose, let's do these tests, let's be open-minded and, and try to figure out what's wrong with you and fix you. What we've got is a situation where people come in 
and the physician says, well, if you have this, this, or this, this is my wheelhouse, this is what I deal with, and I can help you. But on the other hand, if you're outside of any of those lanes, I'm afraid I can't really help you. And what they're saying indirectly is, I don't want to waste my precious time because time is money and I'm not profitable in that sense. And, and furthermore, I'm not meeting my quotas for the higher business entity that controls this practice. And so what I'm really saying is the, the, um, you know, the day and age of sole practitioners and privately owned medical practices is, has really, really diminished. And so with that structure, with that uh, uh, pattern from a business perspective, it's really provided a great grounding for all of these things to go on. So people in, in the medical arts by human nature, they get there, they're very, very busy. They're trying to keep up. They often have to retake boards and, and stay you know, concurrent with certifications. And they don't have a lot of time to do private research. In fact, you'll take a look at certain physicians. I had a buddy who used to sell orthopedic surgery instrumentation. And he said, Dave, you know, I go into surgery with some doctors and they're using orthopedic kits that are 20 years old and I can't get them to switch. And I said, well, well why is that? He said, well, very simple. They want something repeatable that they know how it works in their hands and that they've seen, they, they know all of the pros and cons and they know how to handle situations with it. And it's the same thing with pharmaceuticals. You'll see people in this, well, I've been in practice for 25 years and I'm comfortable with this group of drugs because I've used them on a large portion of my, of my practice and I know how to manage people on that. And so they don't immediately look for newer and better types of antibiotics or other alternatives. And that's why it's called the art of medicine and the practice because they want to stay within a comfort zone. And so take, take all of that as background and now overlay the situation that we have. You have this, this new entity called COVID, and all of a sudden, all of the entities, the pharmaceutical reps that they're comfortable with, that take them to, take them to lunch or bring in pizza for their staff or things like that, the ones that they're friends with, um, they're coming in and they're saying, well, we need to do these vaccines, and they're towing the party line, so to speak. And remember, those people don't have the same ethical um, imperative that the physician has, right? The Hippocratic Oath, etc. And so that entity as a source of information is, is already compromised from a business uh, profitability standpoint right out of the gate. Then you take things like you just mentioned, Troop, the CDC, the FDA, the, the so-called official clearinghouses for quote-unquote medical truth, and and so these, these physicians, these nurses, they look at these sources because they've gotten their information from them consistently year after year. And they just, it's, it's a complete paradigm shift for them to question those, those old tried and true sources. And that's what, I, that's, what I've, that's what I'm trying to emphasize, my disappointment, that people can't sort of step back, look at the bigger picture and say, you know, there's something else going on here. We've we've crossed the threshold. Now, true. One thing I do want to mention is when you get down to the ethics of this, 
because I, I know a lot of people in the medical community, and I can tell you, I, I've, I had a lot of people say to me in the past, oh, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? Because I, I hear these things and I'm really nervous about it, but I don't want to lose my job and so on. So they all have to face those questions on a personal basis because their health is their health as well. Just like, you know, everybody's a patient, right? They're human beings. But, but the, the thing that, um, that I've seen is that getting into certain physicians, getting into hospitals, getting this procedure, that procedure, and so on, has become so much more difficult, particularly in elective procedures, because the hospitals simply don't have the staffs that they used to. Why? Because there were a hell of a lot of nurses and even some physicians who said, hell no, you're not sticking that in my body. I'm going to walk because I'd, I'd like to have a family. I'd like to have kids. And I'm seeing the implications of what this means in terms of, of reproduction or uh, you know, stillbirths and, and all of those kinds of things. So you know, there has been a culling of the medical community in certain respects, not from a uh, mortality perspective, but from a, am I still going to do this job? Am I still going to treat patients? Um, that's, it's been very detrimental in that regard as well. So you've had this perfect storm of situations where you have the medical business model, which already took things down, down one, one direction, one track, which was not good in terms of that, that critical, um, relationship one-on-one between a, a physician and the patient. Uh, you introduce these large entity insurance companies which drive everything financially, and then you overlay the business models, the business corporations that drive things. It just makes for the perfect storm of an absolute catastrophe in terms of healthcare, and that's that's why you see the, the situation in, uh, that we find ourselves. And a lot of these people, and my heart goes out to them, are are frankly lost. They don't know what which end is up. They don't know who to trust anymore, and they don't know what to do. And you take a guy like like Brian Artis, who is a chiropractor and into naturopathic things, and he helped identify that that circle of events where you've got remdesivir being pumped into people. And of course, what happens? It it causes kidney dysfunction. And then what happens there? You get fluid backup and buildup, which causes lung issues because now you're getting a pneumonia-like condition. And they're saying, well, COVID's COVID's a lung-related respiratory illness. Not necessarily. They told us that COVID was going to kill off most of the smokers because of the you know vulnerability of their lungs. What we found in actuality is that barely anybody who smoked died. Because of the they, nicotine, yeah. <laughs> so you've, you've got a whole bunch of different factors going on. It's a very complex situation. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, people have to make their own choices, their own decisions, ethically and otherwise. Uh, a, do they still want to practice? B, how are they going to treat other human beings? I was talking to a nurse the other day, and she she was very animated in saying, they told me to do this and that. I told them to go to hell. I'm treating my patients how my, I'm giving my patients what they need, and I'm taking care of them. And well, I'm most like, of those, most for of you. those docs, though, you got to remember, a lot of those docs got, got – um, Complaints filed against them and AMA complaints, license sure. issues. They were full court pressed to try and implement these these vaccine passports, right? And and 
get rid of any doctor that went against the narrative. And look, the FDA and the CDC both compromised completely. And it's, again, it's part of the crumbling, um, the crumbling government apparatus. But the, I think that the other side of that that you were touching on, but you didn't, I don't think you fully um, explained is the fact that privatized medicine has changed the scope of medicine and the insurance companies have changed the landscape. So doctors have to see more patients mm -hmm. in order to make money. Yep. It, did, it did used to be they made money no matter what. But now if you go to a doctor, if you see a doctor for more than 15 minutes, it means there's either something seriously wrong with you or they can't figure it out. And most of the time they're you're in and out. You go in, you tell them what's going on. They may look at you a little bit, listen to your heart, and then they're writing a script. It's a different world than when, than when you and I were younger and we went to see the doctor and they spent an hour with you and actually cared about your your diet, your health, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that, I think privatization has, has had just as much of an impact on keeping doctors quiet as well as the AMA. And the AMA is a construct of control. It's not... They're supposed to be there to standardize care and to um, standardize procedures across all healthcare. And I think that's BS. They're there for just like the CFPB. They're there for enforcement and muscling doctors because that's exactly what they did during the pandemic. A couple of anecdotal stories. Uh, a few years ago, I had a, a nurse tell me she was working in a doctor's office, a dermatologist, and she was, I was over at some friend's house and she was one of the friends of the people at the party there. And, and she, uh, she said, yeah, the, the doctor that I work for gets billed. If you have a, if you have an incision that's less than a centimeter, it's only this much, but if it's more than a centimeter, it's this much. And so he, he, uh, he'll take something that only requires a two or three millimeter incision and he'll make sure it's always at least 11 millimeters or longer if he can get away with it. And I went, why haven't you reported him? She said, for what? I said, because he's literally damaging people for profit and you're a nurse and your scope of practice practice dictates that you report that type of behavior. Well, there's this big stratification between the, the doctors and the, and the nurses as far as medical boards and the type of resources they have if they're accused of wrongdoing. Well, I got involved and I had that fucking doctor's license pulled. They shut him down because they investigated it and that's exactly what he was doing. On the other end of the spectrum, when I tore my rotator cuff, I had no idea it was wrong. And I went to the uh, the uh, the new the new thing they have now here in Phoenix is this village medical at the at the Walgreens. And when you walk into the exam room, they have a little tablet on the wall and you can click on it. You can look up your body. You can zoom into any any part of your body, muscular nerves, bones and the uh, they have PAs that come in. And I diagnosed my own, like my own problem. And then the PA had no idea that this tablet had this, uh, this anatomy capability on it. And I pointed right at, I said, this is a thing that hurts. And so I think according to this, it diagnosed that I have a torn rotator cuff. So the doctor came in and then the doctor confirmed it, but it, it was like, basically I Googled my own, uh, my own thing. It's like, why do, what do I need you for? And the, and the third thing is, and I, I told Steve this a few weeks ago, this gal who wasn't homeless walked up to my aid station. She said, hey, Trooper, I, I stepped on, I broke a, uh, a uh, glass top to a, a crock pot. Uh, Pyrex glass is in my foot. 
can you can you pull it? You know, can can you take a look and see if there's any of my anything in my foot? So I extracted a glass splinter from this from this woman's foot, and she gave me fifty dollars. I said I don't I don't need donations. This is fine. She said, "Honey, I'm going to donate to the church anyway, but this is literally better and cheaper than you know what what I have a copay for." Like, <laughs> you know, you're getting you're getting the service on the spot. You get better medical care from a redneck and in the back of a pickup truck and a and a park full of homeless people than you do paying full price through your PPO. It's just a that absolutely speaks to to what Dave's talking about. Well, I can tell you, you mentioned the issue with insurance. Go back 20 years. My father was was having uh, bypass surgery, and I was standing there uh, with my brother talking to the uh, talking to the cardiac surgeon, who my brother happened to know personally. And the guy was explaining. He said, he said, you know, um, when I started into this you had to be one of the top handful of people in your class to get into a good cardiac surgeon surgery program as a residency. And he said, it was very competitive. And he said, you made good money. And he said, I used to make, you know, 10 to $12,000 for, you know, this kind of surgery, whatever. And then he says, he says, but today, thanks to the insurance companies, the way things have shifted, there's been, there's been some real dynamic changes. He said, first of all, it's easier to get into medical school. It actually became uh, more difficult to get into dental school because dentists weren't being impacted with the in big you know, insurance companies the same way. They are to some degree, but not to the same magnitude as physicians. And the, the second thing that happened is, he said, within my particular specialty, he said, what the insurances are willing to pay is a pittance of what it used to be. So he said, I may get paid $1,700 or $2,200 for a surgery. I used to get paid five or six times that. And he said, the impact of this financially has been that now this year, if you look around as a physician to get into a cardiac surgery program, there are more seats than there, than there are applicants. You just have to apply and you're in. Yeah. Same with nursing schools. It's, and, when they did the purge because of the jabs, it, it, this just didn't, you know, the, 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 the bigger picture that people forget is the jabs and the COVID mandates and the jab mandates didn't just affect the industry of people working. It affected recruitment, education. It affected Hiring, there's there, hospitals have been a lot of hospitals are still at critical staffing because they can't hire new yep. people. Yep, yep. It hasn't gone away, and if the schools that are not producing the same number, and oh by the way, people dying off from the jab, you've created the perfect storm for the healthcare industry to have a crisis. Yeah, it's. It's, that's what I was talking about when I said perfect storm. There's just so many factors. And it yeah. all comes back to human economics. You know, I can recall as, as a kid, uh, you know, my parents always made sure that my brother and I understood what our, our counterparts, our cousins living in Slovakia behind the Iron Curtain were going through and what life was like over there. And uh, they were talking about physicians and, you know, the amount of money they got paid wasn't much more than a guy who was a street sweeper. Now, the reality is if you want to be a good physician, 
you're working long, long hours, long, long days, and you consume huge amounts. You're married to your work. You were up at ridiculously early hours, and you often have to work late taking care of people. It's a, it's, it used to be a profession of dedication, a calling. And, but you would look at the physicians behind the Iron Curtain, and you couldn't compare them. Their capabilities, their knowledge, their skill sets were nothing compared to an American medical professional. Because there was no competition. Nobody cared. They weren't. It was a socialist system. They weren't getting paid. Yeah. And, you know, you have to motivate people. People aren't going to, you know, they're not going to go and extend and and, uh, consume their lives with something like that and expose themselves to potentially fatal illnesses and deal with death on a daily basis. Um if if there isn't an upside of some kind that's just human nature and that's what i mean when i say human economics all of those decision making processes have to be considered with with all of these things because they have a heavy impact well let's let's move on to uh cuz i i've been so many comments uh, i got to give it to you guys in the chat man you're keeping me on my toes that's for sure um Let's move on to you and I had a conversation about, um, well, we've had so many, so many conversation. So yeah, the IRS is going to, well, I don't know what the plan is, but I would say that the IRS is, so 409,000 people were hired by the government last quarter. That tells me that they've probably fully staffed the IRS with, with enforcement. Remember, the IRS has their own court system, their own enforcement branch, completely outside of normal law enforcement. It's a whole different ball of wax. And the the premise of that whole situation is that they're going to go after small business owners. And they're going to, I think that, to be honest with you, I think they're going to go after gun gun businesses and gun dealers because they've been doing it and they've been taking the 4473s. If you don't know what a 4473 is, every time you purchase a firearm and they do a federal background check, you have to fill out a 4473. I know because I do them every single time I transfer a firearm. And I can I can say that the ATF, they're not supposed to take those out of the building. But the last five or six um, raids that they've done on gun dealers, the last one in Georgia that I heard about was, was last year. And the IRS and the ATF went in to this business and the IRS took all the 4473s out. That tells me unequivocally that they're they're going to specifically target smaller businesses. And I could be wrong about that, but the IRS is a factor too. When they're going to employ the IRS, I would think that they're setting up to do that um, just before and after the election. I don't think they're going to do anything um, of consequence prior to the election that would draw attention to them, but stranger things have happened. So, but let's talk about, um, because there's, we got a few minutes left, about 15 minutes left. Do you want to go down the rabbit hole of Antarctica and do some conjecture there? Because you and I talked about it before the show, Dave. <laughs> I might as well go down that rabbit hole, man. If, if you're that's up. A, that's a deep rabbit hole. Because <laughs> you can't. Hey, man, we're only on the tent that we've already had UFOs at malls. So we, we should be all in, right? Go big or go home. Yeah, I, I don't care. Uh, I'm up for it. That's fine. So Dave and I had a conversation before the show. And I know Troop's going to have an opinion on this, which is why I brought it up. Um, by, by the way, Troop, I'm still laughing about the low altitude helicopter therapy. That was probably one of the funniest <laughs> things I've heard in a month. Um, 
we were talking about Antarctica, right? And the question, the question was, you know, what do you think's going on down there? Do you think there's, do you think there's an underground base there? Do you think there's aliens down there? Why are all these high-level figures going down there? Do we think that there's, you know, off-world technology down there? I don't know, but I, I think that we're seeing a lot of strange <laughs> things right now, and. Um, the week of the 24th, I've got another lieutenant colonel coming on. Um, he's a, uh, a retired Air Force, um, flew KC-135s, 141 C-17s, and um, he's he's currently uh, flying right now. And he has seen a lot of anomalies, and a lot of other pilots have seen a lot of anomalies. And I've I've heard from him and several others about things in space that don't add up. So I'm just going to say this. I think that <laughs> I, got, I can't help but be facetious when I, when I have this conversation, I know it's terrible, but you know, I, I've said before that there's technologies that I personally seen that will never see the light of day, but there is obviously something in Antarctica that is so classified and so so highly protected and and i what i think is they took all the technology out of groom lake and they moved it to, to antarctica and there's you know sean david morton will tell you that it's under king's pink king's peak and there's a huge underground base there where s6 was it was moved from groom lake up to king's peak i think part of it was moved to antarctica because think about it what's a better place to hide technology than on the poles because nobody's going to put a satellite over it because there's nothing there. It's one, it's a hard orbit. Number two, it's a hard orbit to put a satellite into. And number three, it's such a harsh environment. You don't have to worry about people infiltrating the place. Whereas if you do something that in the middle of the Pacific where nobody's looking, you can get, there's a chance you could get spotted by a satellite, by ships, by aircraft. There's a lot of different, um, opportunities for somebody to spot your 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 base but antarctica or the arctic in general is a perfect place to hide and i think the reason why antarctica was a was a choice is because there's an actual landmass underneath the ice whereas parts of the arctic is just water i don't i don't know my i think i think that there's a there's an alien base up there we're working with them that's where all of the abductors abductees go that's where all the anal probes happen that's where the financial systems manage and trump's in charge and uh the good guys are winning trump's coming back <laughs> is that isn't that the headquarters of all the white hats down there i i don't know dude the white hat i don't guys. know i've heard yeah, nazi uh, bases uh, i've heard choose yeah. headquarters is there colonel is it Q's headquarters? headquarters. It's been confirmed by Natural News. Okay. I just I real raw news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real raw news. Yeah. yeah. As soon as I heard that, I'm like, up oh, taking that down. That's bullshit. <laughs> so Antarctica is cut up into like pizza slices, and each little pizza slice is a sovereign territory of a different nation. You can pull up a map. I don't, I don't have the map in front of me, but I remember this. The last time I looked at Antarctica. So I think that. It, I think that Antarctica is a research goldmine for just hardcore academic research. And I bet there's a lot of stuff that is, that's there that we don't know about in the scientific community that it's not ready to be released. We're still studying it. Maybe some of it's secret. I would say if anything, there's probably, 
a, a high probability that there's lots of really unique, rare elements or resources down there that wh whoever the first person is to discover them, if it's on their piece of slice, uh, then they win. And the other thing is you have something mysterious like Area 51 or Antarctica, there's always going to be aliens and secret technologies and stuff. And it's the easiest way to correlate it is all of us who are in the military, all of us had different jobs. But how many civilians have you met that think that uh, everybody that was in the military can do everything from field surgery to drive a tank to fly a helicopter like Rambo? And it's just not true. But people think that because they don't know they don't know what you know how it's structured and what what really goes on right i think antarctica is the same way there, there's definitely things there that science hasn't discovered yet and there's there's lots of opportunity for real raw news or whatever to you know just invent stupid shit. but i don't I, I i don't think there's anything going on other than it's a place that we would want to keep a communications and and uh, surveillance capability because every other country in the world is down there doing the same thing. Yeah, but this has been going on for a long time. I mean, I, go ahead, Dave. I was just going to say, you know, first of all, none of us actually know. We're Obviously, we're all speculating. But it, the first thing that, that my mind goes back to is what do we know solidly about the place? And the first thing that strikes me is that uh, from an environmental standpoint, it's one of the few places on the planet, if not the only place, that would have minimal, very minimal impact from the the onslaught of a nuclear exchange. From what I understand of the, the wind flow, the sea flow, the currents, all of that kind of stuff, things are fairly pristine. It hasn't been exposed to all the pollution that much of the rest of the planet has. And if indeed there is any kind of thoughts of a nuclear exchange to precipitate a mass die-off by these these psychopath oligarchs who want to reduce the world population, that would be the place where you would want to take a large segment of the people you want to save and put them up in some type of living arrangements uh, to ensure their survival. That those would be the people that preserve the genetic. Uh, characteristics of the human race going forward and uh, and so i i could see something like that as an interest i have no idea why john Kerry or movie stars or other politicians or or whomever rich people in general would be flying down there but i remember a year or two ago it seemed like there was lots of people tracking flights down to antarctica but i i just i can't imagine why all of those people would have an interest does Epstein own any property down there? I'm sorry, what's that? I said, does Epstein own any property down there? I have no friggin' idea. <laughs> Good place for an island. I mean, they could. It's a clone factory. They're going down there to get cloned. Well, I do think. Um, I do wonder. I said this to Steve in our discussion earlier. If what we're hearing about the potential for a polar shift is due to due to uh, solar activity that is apparently affecting every planet in our solar system to, to some measurable degree or another. Um, if that's true, and if there's speculation uh, of something really significant happening by, say, the year 2040 to 2046, if they're taking that seriously, 
and then you might find that when the poles do shift that uh, antarctica is no longer going to be a frozen mass but maybe one of the more strategic locations on the planet and uh, so i think that's you could at least reason that that may have something to do with the interest there i'm open to the idea of alien life but i'll be con you know I, I i'm like i gotta i gotta see it to be convinced i don't want to hear about grays and reptiles living under the earth and all this kind of all this kind of stuff i i think most of that talk is is utter nonsense um but steve i think there's a logic to what you said if you wanted to protect something to the utmost uh in terms of classification and secrecy it makes a perfect uh perfect environment perfect location in terms of defensibility um if you have advanced forms of technology be they anti-gravitational or otherwise uh propulsion systems any number of different things um that you want to keep out of the public eye but fully vet and develop again it's it's the most isolated place on the planet That's, and, I, and i i base that off of when we did so when we were doing launch ops out of annenberg and out of the cape the, the obstacle was always when you try and boost something into Earth's orbit, right? The closer you are to the equator, the, the easier it is to boost it into orbit. And one of the things that was always a concern was that if we have a classified payload that's on sea launch, which could be off a of midway or, or one of those islands out there, what's to stop one of our adversaries from coming in and stealing it or worse, you know, um, disrupting the launch and the answer is there's nothing so when you talk about you know highly classified programs that you want to keep out of the public eye that's the perfect place to do any kind of testing of you know um exotic aircraft exotic spacecraft that's a perfect place because there's not going to be any eyes down there there's no satellite coverage there's no reason to go down there and it's it's a very arduous journey to get there it's not an it's not an easy trip down there. And there's only a specific period of time where the weather is good enough down there in the summertime to be able to conduct those tests anyway. So it's a perfect place for R&D. So I could see it being an R&D place, a bunker, a, um, a stockpile place. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of different activities you can do there and the public would never see it to include bioresearch. I mean, who knows? We probably have a bio lab there. Where don't we? Oh, that's the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it does, uh, talking to Colonel Rao earlier today, he brought up Admiral Byrd going down there in the 46 and then sometime after that getting in, involved in some kind of a direct fire engagement with some things that uh, were fast enough that they couldn't shoot them. And they had taken 260 sailors as casualties and kind of retreated with their tails tucked between their legs, so to speak. And uh, I would be interested to see, and, and of course, Bird tried to get stuff out, but I would be very interested to research what it is he was trying to get out, what, what he had to say and what he saw. I think Corsi and, was the one that wrote the Jerome Corsi was the one that wrote the book about the bird expedition. I think it was him. 
But somebody wrote a book about it and talked about how his press conference afterward, which was, which basically was whitewashed, where he said that, you know, we encountered craft that can travel from one continent to another in minutes versus hours. And they can travel at speeds in excess of uh, the speed of light or a speed of sound. And, you know, back then that would have been significant. I'm surprised it didn't get any more traction, but I think Jerome Corsi is the one that wrote the, wrote the book about it. He seems to be an interesting guy. I'm not sure what his sourcing on certain things are. Well, he wrote um, a book about um, post-war what happened to Hitler and that Hitler ended up in Argentina and Patagonia. And he had a, a villa down there and a lot of German expats went down there and he actually died in Argentina. And it was an interesting book. I don't know how much of I believe, but some of the stuff he talked about um, actually happened, like German submarines showing off, showing up off the coast of and surrendering to the Argentine authorities after World War, months after World War II and throughout the summer of 45. So there is, there's some plausibility into what he's saying. And um, the other premise they used is that uh, Alfred Borman was went down to Argentina before Hitler um, in 44 and started investing in American and British and European country, uh, companies to, to not just preserve the wealth of the uh, Nazi regime, but to um, build another stockpile of funds to rebuild the army. And sometime after Hitler got there, he went off the reservation. I mean, who knows at this point how much of that is real, but it's a pretty significant accusation given the um, the chain of events that happened after the war. And it would be, I, I, I can, I mean, we have contingency plans for a nuclear, uh, a nuclear exchange for all of our elected officials. Why would it be naive to think the Germans didn't have the same thing? If they knew when they when they were retreating across Russia, you don't seem to think that some of those German generals were planning some kind of an exodus for some of the key figures in the Nazi regime? They absolutely were. And it would think, be naive to think that they didn't. No, there's plenty of evidence of, of rat lines and, and rather extensive efforts to plan escape routes through any number of, of ways. And, uh, you know, both transcontinental and, uh, you know, seaborne. Uh, getting over there, and I think there's there's a mountain of evidence of the German of the you know prior Nazi um, communities that that popped up in Argentina, some of those areas. Well, I mean, why wouldn't there be? You look at look at Operation Paperclip and Gladius and things like that. They 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 put those people in a variety of places, and some of them weren't even hiding. Yeah, so, and and let me add, let me add to it that let's just say for for argument's sake. They're that close to the, the the Antarctic. Why wouldn't it stand to reason that they would try and establish some kind of a base? I mean, they had several expeditions in the 30s down to, um, to Antarctica. What, who's to say that they didn't find some cut some kind of a a tunnel or a mountain system that they could establish a you know uh, an evacuation point to? I mean, we do it, and look at how many bunkers they built around Berlin. It wasn't like they didn't know how to engineer things and it wasn't like they didn't, you know, live, live, live in the Alps and train in the Alps. So they knew how to operate in cold weather. You can make a lot of leaps from this into some plausible explanations for, you know, what happened in Antarctica. And there's a, there's in the UFO community, there's, there's a, 
a widespread, I don't know how widespread it is now, but there was a widespread uh, belief that the, the Nazi regime moved to Antarctica with all this alien technology, you know, the Nazi bell and some of that other stuff. And I don't know how much, how real that stuff is. Um, but Sean David Morton talks about it in his book, Sands of Time, he talks about the Nazi bell and the, the, the hunt by U.S. US um, authorities to try and find the, the people that were associated with that after the war. And that some of that technology moved down to Antarctica. So you can make the case either way. I don't know how true it is. I mean, I, I have a hard time with a lot of this stuff just because when you when you step back from from World War II to where we are now, that's 80 years. You're telling me in 80 years that story never got out by anybody credible? I mean, that that's the hard part about it. Well, the sheer magnitude of just how barren and destitute and and inhospitable that environment is would make it extremely difficult for people, especially, uh, you know, people of the Nazi ilk who would be aging, you know, years after that would, would find that extremely difficult as an environment. Uh, so it, in my mind, that kind of mitigates, yeah, it's a great place to hide if you can survive. And and uh, I'm not sure how that balances out. Well, or you know, there's the logistics around. St you can't just stay down there, right? You have to have a whole ecosystem there, in order to stay hidden. It's not like they're going to go back to Argentina and shop for supplies for 50 years using Reich marks, right? So there has to be another mechanism for them to sustain that down there. That's because that's the other piece that was never plausible to me is that like you establish this Nazi base there. And how are you going to, you know, grow food? How are you going exactly. to, you know, exactly. the sustainment's going to be a big, a big deal. But I, I mean, it's great to talk about. I, I just, I, I got a kick out of when you and I talked about it earlier, because <laughs> I mean, there's some deep rabbit holes there, right? Well, well Rao, Rao made a comment to me that there was, uh, and I don't know when this happened, but he did take seriously the concept that that there were people who had, from satellite, spotted some type of pyramids or something down there, and that was the well, first I I had ever heard of that. Yeah, that's true. It's on Google Maps. You can you can see it on Google Maps. There's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of, just go to YouTube and do a search, and they'll they'll show you exactly that. I think the links for the Google Maps um, grid location are are in the comment section of the video, so you can see it there. But, I mean. I don't know. I go back to my to my sit rep on Monday, and I I, th I still believe we're getting prep for some kind of disclosure. And I don't I, I I too many things that are being put in the public space right now lead me to believe that because it's not just sightings. It's not just it's not just reports from pilots. I, I think they they know that something's coming that they can't stop and they're trying to get ahead of it by getting the public re public ready for it. And if you go back to Eisenhower, because Sean Morton and I, Sunday Morton and I have had, had a bunch of conversations around this and texts back and forth, traded emails. And one of the things he told me that stuck with me was when, when Eisenhower supposedly signed the Granada Accords, I think that's what he said it was, in the 50s when he went to Palm Springs to play golf and he was at the dentist all day, but he was really at Edwards Air Force Base meeting with tall grays. Um, 
one of the things that he wanted to do was tell the public. But all the eggheads and academics in the science community said, the public can't handle this. Now, this is after the 1942 Santa Monica um, war, yeah, basically air, you know, air raid by UFOs where all the air defenses were shooting at a UFO over Santa Monica. The public already knew that, that aliens were around from the early 40s. So that argument, I don't think that argument holds any water anymore. I think there's enough people across this, across the world now that have seen UFOs that I don't think it would be a shock to people. I think most people have generally accepted that we're not alone. I think in the 50s, most people would have embraced it because of Buck Rogers and some of the other um, series as well as War of the Worlds, right? I think all those guys were going off of War of the Worlds and they were all trying to um, trying to say that, look what happened after War of the Worlds. That was just a radio broadcast and most of the country freaked out. I, I don't think that applies today. Well, let me let me throw in a monkey wrench to this a little bit. So 50 years ago, I was I was just I was a very young guy. I had a neighbor who was an egghead. Uh, we called him Dr. Ben. Uh, the guy had multiple PhDs and he was into a variety of different things. And he uh, one of which was he was a psychologist. And I I asked him, I said, because I didn't sleep that much as a kid, I didn't seem to need it. But I said, why do the government sedans, and at that time, Chrysler had a contract with the government, so, and you had three types, three colors of cars, deep navy blue, which was very ugly, a deep dark olive, and a mustard color. And one of those three color cars would show up at his driveway at like three or four in the morning. And a couple of guys would get out and scurry down his downhill into his driveway, into his basement. And I, I said, who are you having over your house at that time? And he said, well, I have, I'm under contract with the United States government. I, I do deprogramming interviews with captured Soviet agents. And I kind of sat there looking, I'm like, whoa. And uh, I, I never saw anything to dissuade me from believing that was true. And so with the understanding that he had a certain level of classification, we talked about some different things over the couple of years that, that we lived in proximity to one another, one of which was, was aliens. And he had a map on the wall that had a picture of the moon, and, uh, but it was kind of odd. It was an odd-shaped picture. And I thought, I, I said to him uh, when I was, I was cleaning his basement or something and, and seen this, and I said, that's a picture of the moon, right? Yes, it is. Why does it look so strange? He said, because that's the side that you never see. That's the dark side. Oh, what are those pins in it for near the edge? Well, he said, do you remember the lunar rover? I said, sure. He said, well, it was very expensive. But the reason we spent the money wasn't to explore the moon. We knew the moon was fairly unremarkable. But we wanted our astronauts to be able to do a reconnaissance and go just over the edge to the dark side and slightly beyond to where there were forward operating bases that, that aliens, that extraterrestrials had used years before. And I, 
I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, let me ask you a question. He said, if I, I so I said to him, so you're telling me there's definitely aliens? He said, absolutely. But he said, let me ask you a question. He said, if I explained to your grandparents that there were aliens, how would they react? And I said, well, they'd be pretty freaked out. They're deeply religious, and that would really upset the apple cart. He said, exactly. That generation couldn't handle it. But he said, how about your, your parents? I said, well, they'd be a little more open to it, but they're still not that open-minded. They'd really have to see to believe. And he said, yes, precisely. He said, what I'm going to tell you is, is not well understood. He said, did you see the movie Star, uh, Star Wars? Yes, of course. Did you see the movie Close Encounters of, of the Third Kind? Yes, of course. Do you remember, do you know much about Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry? And I said, yeah, I'm a big Star Trek fan. And he said, well, each of those movies, as well as others, are part of a CIA project to to change the public's opinion about extraterrestrial life and introduce people to the idea that A, they're, they're very well maybe aliens, and B, they're not necessarily our, our enemies. So, so unlike Buck Rogers, where every alien is, is out to destroy planet Earth or whatever, that, that alien, there may be alien life out there that's not just intelligent, but not necessarily warlike as well. And he said, this is part of a, a multi-generational, decades-long transition that will probably come true longer after, or excuse me, will probably be exposed after I'm dead, but quite possibly at some point when you're an older adult. And it's interesting to me that there were other things that Dr. Cook told me about, which I found out were absolutely true. He never told me anything that, that I, I uh, found. Um, they were incredible, but they weren't lies. And there were many things he told me about that uh, you know, unbelievably turned out to be absolutely true. And I saw hard evidence. Interestingly, he died under very mysterious circumstances a year or two after he moved off my street. And I don't know if that had something to do with the Soviets or, or something else in one of these government programs. But when you talk about people getting exposed to these ideas, I always remembered how we talked about the CIA wanting to transition people and build a different perspective on alien life, a more mature perspective, so that the public could handle it. But he did emphasize it would probably take 40, 30, 40, 50 years to really come to maturity before they would release that information. You know what I'm wondering? What the last chick at the end of the bar looks like at the interstellar cantina <laughs> at 2 at two a.m. UTC galactic time. Imagine <laughs> that. And then imagine waking up with that. Like you listened to all that and that's that. what you came up with? Well, I mean, <laughs> all I of that? I, I wonder who the bar fly is at the end of the night at the... <laughs> At the cantina in Star Wars? Really? An entire, what is it? A, an entire galaxy full of new discoveries are out there. I mean, just imagine. Well, I kind of got lost at the at the Arctic. I mean, honestly, the way I look at it, all the all the bad guys going down there and digging holes and freezing to death, if, if I can't locate, capture, or liquidate the bad guys, I don't give a shit if they live in Antarctica. 
that's fine. They can stay there. Well, but, yeah, I, it's just it's a source of so much so much conversation. It's just well, entertaining. Let me right, circle. So, let me let me circle back real quick with one last comment, Steve. And that's okay because we're two hours and fifteen minutes. So I'm gonna roll. I'm gonna wrap this up. No, it's fine. One of the very first conversations I had with you, I said, I'm I'm increasingly convinced that one of the driving motivations for the powers that be on this planet, bringing things to a culmination point, bringing things to a head, is the fact that there is probably, uh, there is probably, almost certainly, very advanced technology, which we have had, which is becoming so profound that, that they're less and less capable of keeping it under wraps. And with more of this stuff emerging, they're they're in dire fear that they're going to lose control. Oh, they're going to lose control. It's not it's not they're in fear of losing control. They're going to lose control. But what, what would that technology be, though? I mean, if, if you would have shown somebody a modern day iPhone even 35 years ago, I'd smuggled this off of the government base in Antarctica and then showed them all, all the stuff that you can do with an iPhone. It, people would be freaking out. I mean, well, probably, I, yeah, I. They they would be, but no, but be they could, they could conceive it. They could conceive yeah, it. It's, that's a, it's a different thing than say, okay, we've got um, heavier heavier than air craft that don't obey Newtonian mechanics. They can zip this way and that way. They don't get affected by centrifugal force or inertia or those kind of things. And oh, by the way, we've got energy sources that are limitless, and uh, we're not going to be reliant on internal combustion engines and we can completely change the world's economy blah 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 uh high-tech things that are just beyond belief uh i think a lot of that stuff is an outgrowth of early work by tesla and his disciples and there's been an entire century for them to conduct that work covertly well i and i think about it this way i i think that humans could have figured that out on our own we didn't need to capture or or you know pick up a, a you know downed alien craft to figure that technology out we were already on our way to it in the 20s and 30s with some of the research that they were doing and in addition to that if you go back to the 30s when dick tracy came around they were talking about a, a watch that he could talk to with a, that was a radio back in the 30s so i don't think that technology would be too too far-fetched in addition to that, you know, I have several friends that worked out at Groom Lake, and I can tell you that some of the things they talked about was really, um, it was things that that you'd be unimpressed with things we were working on out there because it was all, it was all stuff that we could figure out, and it was it was mundane op stuff, which tells me that most of the exotic stuff had already been moved out of there, and this was years ago. So it, it stands to reason that we would we could figure that technology out, and it also makes a lot of sense that, you know, the powers of the B would want to go out and see what's out there to see if it's a threat, if it's real, and, you know, see what the, the currency is and the, and the trade material is outside of our, uh, our atmosphere. You, they, they'd want to know that, right? I'd want to know that. What are we up against? And the, 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 the public, you're right, in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a certain portion of the population that would have been very um, uh, superstitious and would have gone off the reservation. But I I don't think that's to, today, that's not 
It's just not possible. I think there's a small percentage of people that would probably go off the reservation, but I think a preponderance of the planet has already accepted it from all the UFO sightings have gone on over the last 20, 30 years. I mean, you, you can't, you can't have some of the things that have been publicized. And I think the internet has brought a lot of awareness in and of itself to the rest of the world. Right. So, you know, it's, 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 there's a lot of things you can, you can look at and say plausibly, yeah, this, this makes sense why we would do, do things this way. But I, I'm convinced that this current set of malcontents, the elites right now, guys like Michael Bloomberg, Sergey Brand, and the rest of the malcontents that are all wrapped up with children, these guys, I, I don't think these guys are read onto that because these guys are too maniacal and they're, eventually their arrogance is going to be their undoing. Like Matt said it the best. They think they can control the outcome, and they're not going to. They're, this is going to go off the rails no matter what they do. And when it does, I, we'll, we'll see a shift, and maybe that's when we see the, the disclosure. Because I'll tell you, you want to stop world war? Have a, have a mothership hover over the White House. That'll stop every goddamn war on this planet. Because everybody will realize all at one moment we're fighting the wrong people or we're looking in the wrong direction. And that conversation will change immediately. As well as all this, this, this value. People value their stuff more than they value anything else, and I think that will go. That that materiality and materialism would go away overnight. Because you well, know. the whole perspective that there's something other than us, and there's something greater than us that can that can traverse light years distances, would be a very uh, perspective changing phenomenon. Yeah. By the way, by the way, I wanted to jump in. W.D. Marconi asked the question, when did I have this conversation with the doctor? The answer is, and I'm dating myself here, it was uh, it was the mid to late 70s. It was, it was like 76, 77. God damn, you're old. And uh, I was I was a little kid. I was God a little damn kid. You're old. But I, I'll tell you this. I will tell you this. There were other things he talked about, like ghost hunting where he brought up stuff that I later found to be absolutely, and I was like, what? And I came up with stuff later on. And, oh my God, this guy was exactly right. Dude, and, the watchman. Uh, really, Chris? I walked out of that. That's two hours of my life. I'll never get back. I walked out of that movie going, does anyone, anyone know what that movie was about? Anyone? Everybody looked at me shaking their heads. Yeah, no, no. Watchmen. That was, uh, that was soft. That was soft core porn is what that was. Sorry, Dave. I digress. I saw that comment. No, I I, I see the comment. I, so I was just I was saying. So it was it was in the mid to late seventies when that happened, and uh, yeah, the the way that he met the way that he met his end had a, a a gravity or gravitas to it that kind of cemented in my head that yeah, this, this guy wasn't a bullshitter. This guy was into some real stuff. Well, I think what we're gonna find. A decade from now, is that a lot of things that the public's been sold for the last 80 years has been a lie, and that there's been there's been a lot of things that have been buried from the public view and history rewritten, and a lot of other things. Um, the movie was softcore porn. Sorry, dude. I, 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 Malin Aiklin is is naked a lot of that movie. Come on. Um, the, the we're going to find out a lot of things that we've heard are they literally are lies i mean lies about the wars lies about all of our 
our activities around the world, lies about a politician, lies about every single one of these, these um, elite families. We're going to find out how deep this rabbit hole goes with the, the child pornography and the, and the child trafficking and the crimes against children. That rabbit hole is deep. I think this is just one of those rabbit holes that's going to go really deep and people are going to be com completely and utterly shocked at what they thought was real that isn't real. And I, I you know, the, the, the interesting thing for me is the conversations that I have now versus 20 years ago. You could have never talked about UFOs or aliens 20 years ago, even with Star Trek. And have people take you seriously and now this is a regular part of our dialogue across uh, across the, the planet you see it you see it literally in social media you see it in you see it in the mainstream media now i i can't help but think that that disclosure is is pretty close just saying i tend to think on the back side of whatever quote unquote cataclysmic event or black swan event that we have and i do think it'll take some time to get through it but I also have some, and I'm not like Joe Optimist, but I do have the optimistic vision that there will be an explosion of, of overwhelming technology and things that emerge that were kept secret for literally decades and decades and decades. And it'll be mind-blowing. And it will almost be like a, a renaissance for mankind. And I think I, it will change everything. I think so, too. I think we're we're headed towards a... We're headed towards a uh, a period of enlightenment that's going to be different than any other time in our history, and I think that you'll see um, a lot of these these cultural rivalries, these nation state rivalries, just vanish. And we may even see the nation state vanish once that technology is released. I mean, because and I'm not thinking of the utopian socialist, you know, Star Trek society, but I am thinking that you know we are going to see people embrace technologies and we'll have technologies that that will do away with the, the things that we take for granted every day like heat power i mean we're still going to have to figure out water right water's still going to be an issue for the planet but i think with some of these new technologies a lot of these things will solve themselves with that technology most of the planet is water three quarters of the planet's water Right, no, but no. potable water is an issue right now for a lot of parts of the world, and I think this technology will solve a lot of that. But you know, I'm just saying that, that we'll have technologies that will make our lives drastically easier. So, but I'm, I think the, the realization that people have been lied to about history, I think that's going to shock a lot of people. I'm waiting for the part of the conversation where we talk about Sybil Danning movies from the 1980s. You're killing me, man! <laughs> killing me. Okay. Closing comments for the night. I'll start with you, Troop. Anything you want to say to the to the uh, the audience out there before we close it for the night? Uh, no, just the water thing. And you were talking about the heating up of the campaign season. Anything that's uh, about to happen is going to happen. I think it'll be uh, in the summer during the hottest month of the year. Uh, the other thing is with the disclosures, I, I didn't have enough time to fact check it, but there was something about Bill Clinton pulled down as a post he did or a social media thing or something. A, a lot of the people that have been identified are dead already. Some of these, some of these people that have been fingered in this investigation or whatever, the civil suit. And we're hearing a lot about, oh, this tape is going to be released or somebody's on it. 
if this stuff was already out there and it was outside of the control of controlled lawyers, it would have been on the internet already, I would think, especially if I was a young female or male for that matter, who, who somehow had, had this information, right? At, if I was going to go against somebody like the Clintons, I would want to take whatever evidence I had against them and post it to at least a hundred influencer pages across 10 social medias before I ever, ever even picked up the phone to call a lawyer. Cause if not, I, I know that I would be dead. So we're reading all this stuff, these disclosures, and I'm not, I'm not doubting that, that these sickos were involved in this and everybody's in Hollywood seems to know it. They, they talk about it openly, but the fact is that they, they haven't done anything about it yet. They're not going to do anything about it. And the only value I can see of them playing this narrative now is that Biden's on his way out. This total breakdown of discipline in the military when it starts from the top down with sec death, yet you know that the game's over for them. So they're going to take whatever little bit of mileage that they can get out of this and they're going to use it to their advantage. I don't know. They're going to present a candidate that is going to replace Biden that is somebody who's not a pedophile or what they're going to do whatever they can do with that. But I, I think that Biden's run out of runway and they know it. And the interesting thing about that is they're, they're single shotting the primaries, meaning that they're only running Biden in the, uh, in the uh, presidential preference election, the, the primaries. And I think that they're doing that for two reasons. The first reason they're doing it is because if Biden is the only candidate running for president, they can read the, I don't know who it is, the DNC, whomever can hand select whoever they want to run against Trump or whoever wins the Republican primary. So that's number one. And number two, if they're single shotting Biden, then there's no need for Democrats to vote in the primary. So they can switch party to Republican and they can vote for the shittiest candidate or the established candidate. Um, what's her face, Nikki, and try to try to undermine Trump or at least try to undermine him in a way where they, they dilute the vote so much because we have so many shitbag Republicans running in the primary that there's, there's not enough votes for Trump to overcome that. So it doesn't matter who, who wins in the primary. And then, and then all the Democrats will just switch back to, you know, Democrat after that. And they've done that in the past. That's not, that's not a new tactic, but if, but if your guy is the only guy on the ticket, it opens up a lot of flexibility for you. So that's, again, the reason why I'm saying you guys, you need to register. You need to register as Republicans if you want to vote for Trump, at least in Arizona and some other states, because if you're independent or party not declared, you can't vote for the Republican candidate in the presidential primary in a lot of states. So even if it makes your stomach turn, and I know a lot of people like that, do it, switch, vote, and then switch back to whatever you want. And Myself, personally, I was an independent from the time I started voting until 2008, and I realized that we had no power. That's the only reason why I got involved with the Republican Party. And we have made a lot of great strides. We've, we've got rid of a lot of establishment people. We've really cleaned house. It's not something you can do in 10 minutes. They've been building this construct for decades, but we're making a significant amount of progress. And it's it's frustrating when, you, when you're on the inside of it and you're working hard and you're seeing, you're seeing a lot of progress. But people that are on the outside and they don't see all the effort that goes into cleaning up the party are still of the mindset that it just sucks and it's ran by rhinos. And there's still a lot of them running around. But if you just give up and walk away, they're going to come back. It's like killing half the roaches in an apartment. You got to kill all of them. You got to push them all out. You got to tent the building 
So that's going to take a lot of efforts. Um, so that, you know, uh, August, uh, June, July, August, I think July is a, a, a critical point where if there's going to be any kind of uh, threat to the United States, either internal or external, uh, any kind of uh, contrived black swan event, it's going to be around that time. And vote in the primary, switch your parties. And then after that, after 2024, if there's cheating, we're going to be rebuilding this republic. If there's not cheating and it's a free and fair election, even if nobody gets what they want, I'm sure if the left doesn't get what they want, they're going to riot. But if if it is unequivocally apparent that there wasn't any cheating or there wasn't any cheating that could have influenced the election and we don't get what, what we wanted, we know there's still going to be a whole hell of a lot more red in Congress. But this is my warning to anybody. And I posted a video uh, to your channel, Steve, from my channel. Somebody asked if you had posted on rumble. Uh, there's going to be a truce as long as there's no cheating. And if they steal the election in 2024, it's going to get fucking ugly. So hopefully somebody is listening. What do you mean there's going to be a truce? A we don't want anybody coming off the reservation and we're constantly putting these threats at bay. Oh, I'm just going to go and do this or that. You know, somebody, the people that want to walk out their front door with a plate carrier and an AR and they have no idea what they're going to do with that. Well, this seems to be the, the personification of the American conservative and it's completely false. In fact, all the mass shootings have been what leftists and other gender confused people that were on mind altering drugs. It's easy to communicate with somebody and say, we're, we're, I did this, I did that, you can do this, you can participate in that, we can all work together to do this, um, and bring somebody back to earth, or just ban them from your channel, especially if you don't know if they're you know, an FBI Fed poster or somebody who's just really toxic and you can't help. But if there's cheating in the election, and they steal this election, and they essentially at that point have established that there's a a utter and complete failure of all three branches of government, then there's no reason to obey laws that don't exist. And then that's what I'm talking about. There's no more truce at that point. People are going to lose their shit. <clears throat> it's going to absolutely lose their shit. And Steve and I have talked about this. One thing that I hate more than anything is a lack of discipline. If you have anybody on a team or you're expecting a certain service that you're paying for, or you're, you know, you have friends that you have to go pick up from, from the jail or whatever, it doesn't matter what form it comes in, but a lack of discipline is a pet peeve of mine. And it's extremely hard to control people who don't, who don't have any, any discipline. Right. And so the, the truce is everybody's kind of staying in line and this is on both sides. But if there's cheating in this election, I'm not going to be an advocate for staying out of the conflict space at that point. So I'll end with that. Dave. Okay. Uh, Troop, you had some interesting ideas. And um, although I, I think you said, I think you kind of self-corrected towards the end there. You said it's extremely difficult to keep control of people who have no discipline. Yeah. And, and so I would, I agree with you. Um, and especially with younger generations, but by the same token, the first part of what you were describing was that people potentially um, don't worry about voting for Biden in a primary if he's a single-shot candidate. Re-register as Republicans and and vote against Trump. It's an interesting idea. 
but I, but I don't know, given the disparity of, I should say, all the differences state to state to state in voting regulations, how realistic it is to expect and coordinate uh, a sufficiently large scale effort to go out and beat Trump across the country so as to defeat him as the primary winner in, in, in this next election. I just find that a bit too, too much. They've proven that model in smaller elections, and that is exactly what they do with um, not school board elections, because a lot of them are non nonpartisan, meaning that the candidates don't run as Republicans or Democrats. But in state races and county races and even city races, that that's a very, very common tactic. I, I, no, I, I understand in some places that is true, but nationwide to do it on sufficient scale uh, with sufficient discipline and, and coordination and cooperation I just am not sure you could get that many voters to to be complicit. I, I just don't think they have the discipline to do that on a national scale. Well, what what do you really need out of that? Do you, do you need to shoot out both of the wings on the airplane in Arizona? And there's a couple of other states. If you're and if you have no ID and you can't verify your citizenship or your residency, you can still vote in a presidential election, and you can vote in a presidential preference election just by declaring. And they are supposed to go back and verify those ballots and then throw out the ones that were illegitimate. They didn't do that. They don't do that. So you put 25 million illegals in the, in the country and they can vote in presidential elections. You only need two or three states to do that. And now you've just shifted the, uh, you, you've, you've significantly uh, inhibited the Trump's ability or whomever's ability, we'll just say Trump, uh, ability to win. It's, oh, I think they could definitely have an impact, but I don't, I still think Trump is going to end up being the primary candidate for the Republicans. And I think the main issue for, for the Democrats, for the left and the globalists is what to do about Biden. I think there's tremendous infighting along those lines. And I think, you know, one faction says the guy has, has done yeoman's work and done his job and, and carried the water for us. But I think you also have a lot of people, even on the left, who think medically, health-wise, there's no way this guy can get through a second term. And so the, the, the massive decision point that they face is, what are we going to do with this guy? Are we going to push him through, or are we going to replace him? And when are we going to do that? And I think that, in and of itself, probably has enormous impact on how the rest of this unfolds from, from the timeline perspective as to when things can move forward, because all of that has to be coordinated. But I agree with you, Troop. The, the pivotal point, uh, and I said this literally the day after the election back in 2020, I think that the, the midterm elections in 2022 were going to be like, like a set trigger uh, on an old rifle, and then the presidential election in 2024 was going to be the trigger being pulled that, that drops the hammer. I think almost certainly you're going to have some degree of massive voter fraud. And I think, I think there are a lot of people in this country who are not going to put up with that. And I think, I think you will have conflict at that point. I think that will be, and I know Steve, you, you, we didn't see the kind of reaction you were expecting in 2022, but I think that's going to be on a different scale in 2024. Uh, just my opinion. So in, you know, I, I talked about in my optimistic view of the future, Trump somehow manages to, sur to survive and get through this and, and come out as a national leader. 
Um, I, I'm curious to see if Ben Salman is, is coordinating things on behalf of Trump, or at least in conjunction with Trump in certain regards, if the whole BRICS initiative could be uh, utilized to help um, move the United States into a better sphere of things for the future power running the planet rather than being part of the old system. In other words, I don't want to see the United States turn into effectively what, what Britain turned into uh, with World War II. You know, something relegated, in a sense, to the to the scrap heap of history, overcome by much more larger, influential powers of of greater industrial and geopolitical capacity. So, I have some small, thin thread of of uh, optimism. I had a I had a friend who was a college professor. He was a minister, very uh, influential minister, and he gave. He gave sunrise service to the Joint Chiefs, and he told me after that, he said, you know, David, um, I had an interesting conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and I said, what was it about? He said, I posed a simple question. He said, I, I asked him if there were a nuclear launch on the part of the Soviets, this was back during the Cold War, how would you respond? And he said, I wouldn't do anything. And I said, why did he say that? He said, well, I asked him that. And his response was, what would it matter? And I said, I said to this doctor, uh, this, this uh, minister, I said, do you think we'll reach the point of nuclear war? And he said, I, only in a limited sense, but I don't think we'll have full-scale full scale exchange. And I said, why is that? Why would you believe that? And he said, one simple reason. It's not our planet. And I don't think God would allow that to happen. I don't think we have that kind of control that he would allow us to destroy his creation. Now that's, you know, some people believe in God, some people don't. I do. And I certainly pray to God that, that something like that would be true. I look at a nation like Haiti, and I think, you know, it's not just coincidental that those people suffer the way that they do because it is in a sense in a very real sense a god-forsaken country i pray to god that there's enough christians left enough believers in god in this country that he would look favorably upon us going forward and like i said i think i think you will see with the extreme stresses and challenges that we're going to face people turn back to the lord under those struggles and under those circumstances um, in prayer and in action. I think things will get desperate and I think things will do terrible, evil things. Uh, excuse me, people will do terrible and evil things to one another. But on the backside of it, I think it, I think there will be a kind of cleansing of the world internationally. I don't think it'll be just an American phenomenon. I think it'll be international. Take a look at all the tractors and things lined up on the Autobahn going into Berlin uh, last week of December, there's a lot going on internationally, uh, demonstrating people wanting to resist. So like you, Steve, I think that things are going to change, but not necessarily in the way that, uh, that the oligarchs think, I think it will spin out of their control. And, uh, much like, much like the atmosphere and the planet's natural systems have a way of cleansing themselves, 
and and getting us through to something fresh on the other side, I, I think we're going to see that uh, a once in a millennium type of of circumstance. How long it'll take, I don't know, but I'm optimistic that we come out on the other side of it with far less corruption and a, a completely different paradigm than what we've uh, what we've grown up with. I'd have to second that. I think <clears throat> I think. To put it in bare bones tax, I still have a lot of faith in the American people. I know people don't because people haven't stood up. I think that a lot of people right now are just trying to hang on to what they have um, until the balloon goes up. You know, there's a lot of people out of work. You know, I work in security business. I can tell you that security security demand last year at this time was probably 120%. Now it's down to like 70%. And it's changed. Salaries are going down. Cost of, of resources are going down. The The opportunities are, there's a lot less opportunities out there. And I think people are just hunkered down. But I think by and large, you're right. We're going to, it's going to suck for a while when this kicks off. I don't know how long it's going to go. But when we get to the other side of it, we're going to have three generations that are going to be as hard as nails that are not going to put up with any of the bullshit we're seeing right now. I can tell you that unequivocally because every time a an or, you know, a country or a civilization goes through a transition like this, what comes out the other side is a, a very hardened and very determined um, number of generations for probably the next 50 to 70 years. But I think the difference between this transition and every other culmination point in history is that the technology is so revolutionary on the other side that it will forever change our planet. And I think this will be the last time we see, um, yeah, it's very fourth turning. That's why I was referring to it as a fourth turning. Yep. Um, you know, we're gonna see a release of information and a real history of the planet that may shock a lot of people, but it will galvanize the entire population of the planet. We're also going to see a mass die off from this vaccine that that's unequivocal at this point, it's occurring right in front of us. And if we, if we have the opportunity to unwind it on the other side, I hope we do, but we may not get that opportunity. I, I also think that, you know, when this kicks off, if it was me, I wouldn't wait till summer. I would I would create an event and, and capitalize on the moment right now because this this weather that's coming in is unprecedented and it, it affords the enemy a lot of opportunities. So I, I wouldn't wait till summertime. But that said, I, I think that we're going to see more craziness over the next coming weeks. And you're right, the infighting, I think, is reaching a crescendo. And as I say, almost every sit rep now, lose the fear and nothing to be scared of. What's going to happen is going to happen regardless of whether you're scared or not. So you might as well get your game face on and get ready to go. Because whatever comes at you, the best thing you could do is accept the situation and move forward, make one, you know, one decision after another. That's how the game's played. And none of us know what this is going to look like. We all agree that we think everything's going to happen at once to maximize the chaos. But that doesn't mean Americans aren't going to work together. The one thing I know about Americans is we're the most creative and ingenious people on this planet. 
We've proved it time and time and time again throughout history. That hasn't changed. And I think there's there's a preponderance of these these invaders that they've brought in that you know they're going to be at the whim just like everyone else. And I wouldn't get focused I wouldn't get focused on that either. Focus on the things that matter. Your family, your friends, and what you can do to not only increase your sphere of influence, but add your sphere of influence. And the other side of it too is everybody's stressed out, everybody's tired, everybody's having weird dreams, everybody's seeing effects from whatever they're spraying in the atmosphere. Don't get stressed out about that either. Just go, just go live your life. Be ready and live your life. And keep your keep your essay up when you're when you're you know out and about. Pay attention. Don't be, don't get buried in your phone. Ignore your phone as often as possible and live your life. I'm going to get off of this and go spend time with a very beautiful woman. And you guys have delayed that. So I'm going to <laughs> stop talking and go do that. But I encourage everybody to spend time with your family and friends because that's the best, that's the best money and the best time you can spend. God bless everyone. One team, one fight. Cool. Have a good night.